The following is a conversation with Bjorn Lomberg and Andrew Refkin on the topic of climate change. It is framed as a debate, but with the goal of having a nuanced conversation, talking with each other, not at each other. I hope to continue having debates like these, including on controversial topics. I believe in the power of conversation to bring people together, not to convince one side or the other, but to enlighten both with the insights and wisdom that each hold. Bjorn Lomberg is the president of Copenhagen Consensus Think Tank and author of False Alarm, Cool It, and Skeptical Environmentalist. Please check out his work at lomberg.com that includes his books, articles, and other writing. Andrew Refkin is one of the most respected journalists in the world on the topic of climate. He's been writing about global environmental change and risk for more than 30 years, 20 of it at the New York Times. Please check out his work in the link tree that includes his books, articles, and other writing. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. We've got Sleep for naps, Linode for Linux, Inside Tracker for biological data, and Onnit for supplements. Choose wisely, my friends. And now the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I hate those. I try to make these interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This episode is sponsored by an old and favorite sponsor of mine that brings so much joy to my heart, Eight Sleep, and its new Pod 3 mattress. They recently launched this new generation of mattress. It's, it's amazing. It's a source of so much pleasure for me. I know it because when it's gone, I miss it. I remember how much joy it brings to my world, whether that's through a short power nap or a great night's sleep. Warm blanket, cold bed surface, with the rain gently falling outside. I'll even sometimes take a drink of coffee right before, and I pass off for 20 minutes, and I wake up a new human being. I don't know why that works. I don't know if everyone enjoys naps as much as I do, but they work for me. And sometimes it can make the difference between a mind that is cynical and is really struggling with life and the world to a mind that is open to the possibilities and the beauty of the world. I do that on an A-sleep bed. <laughs> Check it out and get special holiday savings of up to $400 when you go to asleep.com slash Lex. This episode is also brought to you by Linode. Linux, virtual machines. Why is it that my heart fills with joy anytime I think about Linux and the great provider of cloud Linux systems that is Linode if you need to do any kind of compute. Just the interface is super easy to use. It's super reliable, easy to monitor. There's uh, tech support, of course, and that tech support is not just every once in a while or whenever they feel like it. It's always 24-7, 365, real human beings, just incredible. Everything is clear. Everything is easy to use. The world runs on Linux. We're just a bunch of human biological systems having fun with our little pursuits and daily habits and rituals and so on. But all of that, just like fish swim in water, humans in this modern 21st century technological age are swimming in compute. That makes almost no sense, but in a way it does. And you 
may make sense of it if you visit linode.com slash lex for free credit. This show is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, a favorite sponsor, a favorite service that paints a beautiful painting that previews the future. Because in the future, my friends, all the recommendations, all the wisdom, the advice, the mentorship you will need about the future trajectory of your life, whether that's lifestyle, health, diet, medical, all of it, I think all of that will come from your body. And Inside Tracker collects data from your body through blood tests. It's getting blood data, DNA data, fitness tracker data, all of that to make recommendations. This is what the future will be like. Obviously, it has to be done in a way that preserves the privacy and respects your ownership of the data. But outside of that, once that is done, and that's a must, once that is done, then the recommendations that uh, through machine learning, based on this data, will be so, so much better than the 20th century way of doing science, which is based on population data versus you, the beautiful, unique flower of an individual that is you. Get special savings for a limited time when you go to insidetracker.com slash lex. This episode is also brought to you by Onnit, a nutrition supplement and fitness company. I first heard of Onnit from uh, Mr. Joe Rogan, so it's kind of incredible to know that I'm now doing an ad read for Onnit on this very podcast. I take Alpha Brain every once in a while when I need a super boost for my mind, when there's a long session. I've been doing more and more and more programming lately. And when there's a long session of a difficult programming task, or also sometimes really having to think during debugging. So those can be really exhausting. So sometimes I'll take an alpha brain to help me through that process. It is what it is, my friends. Those sessions can be super exhausting, but uh, super gratifying. So in general, I don't take alpha brain every day. Uh, coffee in the morning and just focus and focus and focus. I try to rely on the power of my mind, but sometimes it's definitely a big help. I enjoy it. Like I said, it's a nootropic that helps support memory, mental speed, and focus. You can get a special discount on Alpha Brain at lexfriedman.com slash onnit. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Bjorn Lomberg and Andrew Rufkin. There's a spectrum of belief on the topic of climate change, and the landscape of that spectrum has probably changed over several decades. On one extreme, there's a belief that climate change is a hoax, it's not human-caused. To pile on top of that, there's a belief that institutions, scientific, political, the media, are corrupt and are kind of uh, constructing this fabrication. That's one extreme. And then the other extreme, uh, there's a, a level of alarmism about the catastrophic impacts of climate change that lead to the extinction of uh, human civilization. So not just economic costs, hardship, suffering, but literally the destruction of the human species in the short term. Okay, so that's the spectrum. And I would love to find the center. And my sense is, and the reason I wanted to talk to the two of you, aside from 
the humility with which you approach this topic is I feel like you're close to the center and are on different sides of that center, if it's possible to define the center. Like there is a political center for center left and center right. Of course, it's very difficult to define, but can you help me define what the extremes are again, as they have changed over the years, what they are today, and where's the center? Oh boy. Uh, well, in a way on this issue, I think there is no center except in this, if you're looking on social media or if you're looking on TV, there are people who are trying to fabricate the idea there's a single question. And that's the first mistake. Uh, we are developing a new relationship with the climate system and we're rethinking our energy systems. And those are very disconnected in so many ways that connect around climate change. But the first way to me to overcome this idea of there is this polarized universe around this issue is to step back and say, well, what is this actually? And when you do, you realize it's kind of an uncomfortable collision between old energy norms and a growing awareness of how the, how the planet works, that you know, if you keep adding gases that are invisible, it's the bubbles in beer, if you keep adding that to the atmosphere because it accumulates, that will change everything, it is changing everything for thousands of years, it's already happening. What do you mean by bubbles in beer? CO2, carbon dioxide, the uh, main greenhouse gas. Uh, Why beer? because <laughs> I like beer. It's also in Coca-Cola. We were talking about cola yes. before. Uh, and it, it, so it's innocuous. We grew up with this idea is CO2, unless you're trapped in a room suffocating, yeah. is an innocuous gas. It, it's plant food. It's beer bubbles. And the idea we can swiftly transition to a world where that gas is a pollutant, regulated, tamped down from the top, is is fantastical uh, you know having looked at this for 35 years I, I brought along one of my tokens this is my 1988 cover story on global warming the greenhouse effect yeah. discovered 1988 jim hansen the famous american climate scientist the, really he stimulated this article uh, by doing this uh, dramatic testimony in a senate committee that summer uh, in may actually spring late spring it was a hot day and it got headlines and uh, this was the result but it's complicated look what we were selling on the back cover what you see is when you get tobacco cigarettes yeah. <laughs> tobacco yeah. yeah you know looking back at my own career on the climate question it's no longer a belief fight over is global warming real or not you say well what kind of energy future do you want that's a very different question than stop global warming and um when you look at climate actually uh, i had this learning journey on my reporting where I started out with this as the definition of the problem. You know, the 70s and 80s, pollution was changing things that were making things bad. So really focusing on the greenhouse effect and the pollution. But what I missed, the big thing that I missed of the first 15 years of my reporting from 1988 through about 2007, when I was, that period I was at the New York Times uh, in the middle there, um, was that we're building vulnerability to climate hazards at the same time. So climate is changing, but we're changing too. And we, we, where, we, where we are here in Austin, Texas is a great example. Flash Flood Alley, named in the 1920s, west of here. Everyone forgot about flash floods, built these huge developments, you know, along these river basins that on one side starts saying, global warming, global warming. And the other side is not recognizing that we built willfully, uh, greedily, uh, vulnerability in places of utter hazard. Same things played out in Pakistan 
and in Fort Myers, Florida. If you, and you start to understand that we're creating a landscape of risk as climate is changing, then that get, it feels, oh my God, that's more complex, right? But it also gives you more action points. It's like, okay, well, we know how to design better. We know that today's coasts won't be tomorrow's coasts. Work with that. And then let's chart an energy future at the same time. So the story became so different. It didn't become like, you know, a story you could package into a magazine article or the like. And it just led me to a whole different way of even my journalism changed over time. So I don't fight the belief-disbelief fight anymore. I think it's actually kind of a waste. I, I don't, it's a good way to start the discussion because that's where we're at. But this isn't about, to me, going forward from where we're at. It isn't about tipping that balance back toward the center so much as finding opportunities to just do something about this stuff. What do you think, Bjorn? Do you agree that it's a multiple questions in one in one big question? Do you think it's possible to define the center? Where Where's the center? Mm. I, th I think it's wonderful to hear Andy sort of unconstruct the whole conversation and say we should be worried about different things. And I think that's exact, or we should be worried about things in a different way that makes it much more uh, useful. I think that's exactly the right way to, to think about it. On the other hand, that was also where you kind of end it. We are stuck in a place where this very much is the conversation right now. Uh, and and so I think in, in one sense, um, certainly the people who used to say, oh, this is not happening, they're very, very small and diminishing crowd and, and certainly not right. Um, but on the other hand, I, I think to an ex increasing extent, we've gotten into a world where a lot of people really think this is the, you know, the end of the times. Yes. Uh, if, if you look, so the OECD did, did a new survey of all OECD countries and it's shocking. So it shows that 60% of all people in the OECD, so the rich world, believes that global warming will likely or very likely lead to the extinction of mankind. And, and, and that's, that's scary in a very, very yeah. clear way. Because look, if this really is true, if, if global warming is this meteor hurtling towards earth and, you know, we're going to be destroyed in 12 years or whatever the number is, uh, 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 today, then clearly we should care about nothing else. We should just be focusing on making sure that that asteroid gets, you know, we should send up Bruce Willis and get, get this done with, but that's not the way it is. This is not actually what the UN climate panel tells us or anything else. So I think. Uh, it's not so much about arcing against the people who are saying it's a it's a hoax. That's not really where I am. I don't think that's where Andy or really where the conversation is. But it is a question of sort of pulling people back from this end of the world conversation because it really skews our way that we think about problems. Also, you know, if you really think this is the end of time and you know you only have twelve years, nothing that can only work in thirteen years can be considered. And the reality of most of what we're talking about in climate and certainly our vulnerability, certainly our energy system is going to be half to a full century. And, and so when you talk to people and say, well, but we're going to, you know, we're really going to go a lot more renewable in the next half century. They look at you and like, but that's what, 38 years too late. Mm -hmm. uh, and I get that. But so, so I think in, in your question, what I'm trying to do, and I would imagine that's tr true for you as well, is to try to pull people away from th this precipice and this end of the world and then open it up. And I think Andy did that really well by saying, look, there are so many different sub-conversations and we need to have all of them. And we need to be respectful of, of, of some of these 
are right in the in the sort of standard media kind of way, but some of them are very, very wrong and actually means that we end up doing much less good, both on climate, uh, but also on all the other problems the world faces. Oh, yeah, and it disempowers people, too. It, the, those who believe this then just sit back. Even in uh, Adam McKay's movie, the uh, Don't Look Up movie, there was that sort of nihilist crowd, for those who've seen it, who just say, you know, fuck this. We're, uh, and, and a lot of people have that approach. When, when something's too big, uh, and it just paralyzes you as opposed to giving you these action points. And the other thing is, I hate I hate it when economists are right about stuff like the. I I often no no I, there are these phrases like I never knew the words path dependency until probably ten years ago in my reporting, and it basically says you're in a system, the things around you, how we pass laws, the brokenness of the Senate, you know. That those are, we don't have a climate crisis in America. We have a decision crisis as it comes to how the government works or doesn't work. So, but those big features of our landscape are, are it's path dependency. Uh, when you when you screw in a light bulb, even if it's an LED light bulb, it's going into a 120 year old fixture because, and actually, that fixture is almost designed. If you look at like 19th century gas fixtures, they had the screw in thing. So we're like on this long path dependencies when it comes to energy and stuff like that, that you don't just quick magically transition a car fleet. A car built today will last 40 years. It'll end up in Mexico, sold on a used car, et cetera, et cetera. And so this, there is no quick no. fix, even if, if we're true that where things are coming to an end in 13 years or 12 years or eight years. So most people don't believe that climate change is a hoax. So they believe that there is an increase. There's a global warming of a few degrees in the next century. And then maybe debate about what the number of the degrees is. And do most people believe that it's human caused at this time in, in the, in this history of discussion of climate change? So is that the center still? Like, is there still debate on this? Yale University, the climate communication group there for like 13 years has done this Six Americas study where they've charted pretty carefully and ways that I really find useful what people believe. And we could talk about the word belief in the context of science too, but, and they've identified kind of six kinds of us. There's from dismissive to alarmed and with lots of bubbles in between. I think some of those bubbles in between are mostly disengaged people who don't really deal with the issue. And they've shown a drift for sure. There's much more majority now at the alarmed or, or engaged uh, bubbles than just the dismissive bubble. There's a durable, like with vaccination and all, lots of other issues, there's a durable never anything belief group. But on, on, on the reality that humans are contributing to climate change, most Americans, when you're asked, ask them, and it also depends on how you write your survey, you know, but, think, and, and think there's a component. Globally. I mean, when you, yeah. when you ask around, I mean, and, and this is, you know, if you hear this story from the media of 20 years, of course, that's what you will believe. And it also happens to be true. I mean, that is what the science, I, I think, you know, it's perhaps worth saying, and it's a little depressing that you always have to say it, but I think it's worth saying that I think we both really do oh, yeah. accept, you know, the oh, yeah. climate panel uh, science and, you know, there's absolutely global warming. It is an issue uh, and it's probably just worthwhile to get it out of the it's way. It's an issue um, and it's caused by humans. It's caused by humans, yeah. Okay. But vulnerability, the losses that 
are driven by climate-related events still predominantly are caused by humans, but on the ground. It's where we build stuff, where we settle. Pakistan, in 1960, I just looked these data up, there were 40 million people in Pakistan. Today, there are 225 million, and a big chunk of them are still rural. They live in the floodplain of the amazing Indus River, which comes down from the Himalayas. Extraordinary 5,000-year history of agriculture there. But when you put 200 million people in harm's way, and this doesn't say anything about the bigger questions about, oh, shame on Pakistan for having more people. It just says the reality is the losses that we see in the news are, and the, and the science finds this, even though there's a new weather attribution group, it's a WX Risk on Twitter, This does pretty good work on how much of what just happened was some tweak in the storm from global warming, from CO2 changing weather. But, and the media glom onto that, as I did, you know, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. But the, and the reports also have a section on, by the way, the vulnerability that was built in this region was a, was a big driver of, of loss. So discriminating between loss, change in what's happening on the ground and change in the climate system is never solely about CO2. In fact, Lawrence Bauer, B-O-U-W-E-R, um, has, for, I first wrote on his work in 2010 in the New York Times, and basically in 2010, there was no sign in the data of climate change driving disasters. The climate change is up here, disasters are on the ground, they depend on how many people are in the way, how much stuff you built in the way. And so far, we've done so much of that so fast in the 20th century, particularly, that it completely dominates. It makes it hard, impossible to discriminate how much of that disaster was from the change in weather from global warming. So a function of uh, greenhouse gases to human suffering is, is uh, unclear. That's, and that's very much in our control, theoretically. I mean... The, the the point I think is is exactly right that you know if you look at uh, uh, the hurricane Ian that went through Florida, you have a situation where Florida went from what six hundred thousand houses in uh, nineteen forty to seventeen million houses, yeah. uh, sorry ten million houses, so uh, so seventeen times more over uh, what a period of eighty years. Of course, you're going to have what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to have lots more damage. And many of these houses now have been built on you know places where you probably shouldn't be building, and and so I think uh, a lot of scientists are very focused on saying, can we measure whether global warming had an impact? Which is an interesting science question. I think it's it's very implausible that eventually we won't be able to say it has an impact. But the real question, it seems to me, is if we actually want to make sure that people are less harmed in the future. What are the levers that we can control? And it turns out that the CO2 lever, uh, doing something about climate, is an incredibly difficult and slightly inefficient way of trying to help these people in the future. Whereas, of course, zoning, making sure that you have better housing uh, 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 rules, what is it, uh, regulations, yeah. uh, that, that you maybe you know don't have people building in the flash flood. Yeah. What was it called? Flash flood alley. Flash flood alley. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's just simple stuff. And, and because we're so focused on this one issue, 
we sort of uh, it it almost feels uh, sacrilegious to to talk about these other things that are much more in our power and that we can do something about much quicker and that would help a lot more people. So I I think this is uh, this is going to be a large part of the the whole conversation. You know, yeah. yes, climate is a problem, but it's not the only problem, and there are many other things where we can actually have a much much bigger impact at much lower cost. Maybe we should also remember those. Can you still man the case? of Greta, uh, who's a representative of alarmism, that we need that kind of level of alarmism for people to pay attention and to think about climate change. So you said the singular view uh, is, is not the correct way to look at climate change, just the emissions. But for us to have a discussion, shouldn't there be uh, somebody who's uh, really raising the concern. Can you still man the case of for alarmism, essentially? Or is there a better term than alarmism? Uh, commu communication of like, holy shit, we should be thinking about this. Hmm. So I, I think, you know, I, I totally understand why Greta Thunberg is doing what she's doing. I, I have great respect for her because if, you know, I, I, I look at a lot of kids growing up and they're basically being told, you're not going to reach adulthood, or at least not you're not going to get very far into adulthood. Uh, and that, of course, you know, this is the meteor hurtling towards Earth, and then you, this is the only thing we should be focusing on. I understand why she's making that argument. I th I think it's at, at the end of the day, it's incorrect, and I'm sure we'll get around to talking about that. And one of the things is, of course, that her whole generation. Uh, you know, I can understand why they're saying, you know, if, if we're going to be dead in 12 years, why would I want to study? You know, why would I really care about anything? So so I totally want to sort of pull Greta and many others out of this uh, end of the world fear, but I totally get why she's doing it. I think she's done a service in the sense that she's gotten more people to talk about climate uh, and that's good because we need to have this discussion. Uh, I think it's uh, unfortunate, and this is just what happens in almost all policy discussions, that they end up being, you know, sort of discussions from from the extreme groups because it's just more fun on media uh, to to have sort of the the total deniers and the and the and the people who say we're going to die tomorrow, and it sort of becomes that discussion. It's more, you know, it's more sort of a mud wrestling fight. So, would you than... think the mud wrestling fight is not useful or is useful for communication? for effective science communication on one of the platforms that you're a fan of, which is Twitter. Yeah, I wrote a piece recently in my Sustain What column saying if you go on there for the entertainment value of seeing those knockdown fights, I guess that's useful if that's what you're looking for. The thing I found Twitter invaluable for, but it's a practice. It's just like the workouts you do or, you know, it's, how do I put this tool to use today, thinking about energy sufficient energy action in poor communities? How, how do I put this tool today, learning about what really happened with Ian, the hurricane, you know, who was most at risk? Uh, and how would you build back, build forward better? I hate build back. Um, or you can go there and just watch it as an entertainment value. That's not gonna get the world anywhere. You don't think entertainment I, I wouldn't call it entertainment, but giving voice to the extremes isn't a productive way forward. It seems to, you know, to push back against the main narrative, it seems to work pretty well in the American system. We, we think 
politics is totally broken, but maybe that works, that like oscillation back and forth. You need a Greta and you need somebody that pushes back against a Greta to get everybody's just to uh to get everybody's attention. The the fun of battle right. over time creates progress. Well, and this gets to the you know, people who focus on communication science. I'm not a scientist. I write about this stuff. If you're gonna try to prod someone with a warning, like, like yeah, this is three years apart. Nuclear winter. Nuclear winter. We'll talk about that. Global warming. Well, yeah, we'll talk about it. But look at look at that. You know, this is three years apart in the covers of the magazine. Yeah. And uh, but then you have to say to what end if you're not directing people to a basket of things to do. Yeah. And if you're, you're if you want political change, then it would be to you know support a politician. If you want energy access, it would be to look at this three hundred seventy billion dollars the American government just put into play on climate and say, well, how can my community benefit from that? And and I've been told over and over again by people in government, Jigar Shah, who heads this giant loan program, the Energy Department, he says, what I need now is like nineteen thousand five hundred people who are worried about climate change. Maybe because Greta got them worried. But here's the thing you could do. You can connect your local government right now with these multi-million dollar loans so you can have electric buses instead of diesel buses. And that's an action pathway. So without, so you know, alarm for the sake of getting attention or clicks, to me is not any more valuable than watching a, an action movie. And, and and again, I think also it very easily ends up sort of skewing our conversation about what are the actual solutions, uh, you know, because yes, it's great to uh, to get rid of the diesel bus, but probably not for the reason people think. It's because diesel buses are really polluting in the, you know, in the air pollution sense. And, right, and right, that, right. that is why you should get rid of them. Right. Uh, and again, if you really want it to help people, for instance, with hurricanes, you should have better, you know, uh, uh, rules and zoning in, in Florida, uh, which is a very different outcome. So, so the, the, the mud wrestling fight also gets our attention diverted towards solutions that seem uh, easy, fun, you know, sort of the electric car is a great example of this. The electric car has somehow become almost the sign that I care and I'm really going to do something about uh, climate. Of course, look, electric cars are great and they're probably part of the solution and they will actually cut carbon emissions somewhat, but they're an incredibly ineffective way of cutting carbon emissions right now. Uh, they're fairly expensive. You have to subsidize them a lot. And they still emit quite a bit of uh, CO2, both because the batteries get produced and because they you know, usually run off of power that's not Strong totally words clean. from your and Lovick. Okay, let's go there. Let's go electric cars. So, okay, <laughs> educate us on uh, the pros and cons of electric cars in this complex picture of, uh, of climate change. What do you think of the efforts of Tesla and Elon Musk on pushing forward um, the electric car revolution. So look, electric cars are great. I I, I don't own a I don't own a car, uh, but you know I've I've been driving. There you a go, Tesla. socially signaling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but yeah, I've, I've uh, we're in Texas. Well, it's I okay. flew in here, so it's not like I'm I'm in <laughs> yes. any way a, a virtuous guy on, on, on that path. But but you know, look, uh, they're great cars, and eventually, electric cars will take over a significant part of our uh, driving and that's good because they're more, more they're more effective they're probably also going to be cheaper uh there's a lot of good opportunities with them but it's because they've become reified as this thing that you do to fix climate and right now they're not really 
all that great for climate. They, uh, uh, you need a lot of uh, 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 extra material into the batteries, which is very uh, polluting, and it's also uh, it emits a lot of CO two. A lot of electric cars uh, are bought as second cars in the U.S. Uh, so we used to think that they were driven almost as much as as a regular car. It turns out that they are more likely driven less than half as much as uh, as yeah. uh, regular cars. So you know, eighty nine percent of all Americans who have an electric car also have a real car that they use for the long trips and then they use the electric car for that's short true. trips 89 percent, 89 yeah so so the the point here is that that it has it's one of these things that become more sort of a virtue signaling thing and right. again look once electric cars are sufficiently cheap that people will want to buy them that's great and and they will you know do some good for the environment but in reality what we should be focusing on is instead of getting people electric cars in rich countries where because we're subsidizing typically uh in in many countries it's you actually get a a, a sort of sliding scale you get more subsidy the, the more expensive it is we sort of subsidize this to very rich people to buy very large uh teslas uh to drive around in uh, whereas what we should be focusing on is perhaps getting uh, electric motorcycles in third world developing cities where they would do a lot more good. You know, they can actually go as far as you need. There's no you know, worry about running out of them. Uh, and they would obviously, they're much, much more polluting, uh, just air pollution wise. Yeah, and they're much cheaper and they use very little battery. So it's a, it's about getting our senses right. But that, but the electric car is not, is not the car. It's not a conversation about is it technically a really good or is it a somewhat good uh, uh, insight. It's more like it's a virtual signal. So just you know, I'm I'm an I, I work with economists. I'm actually not an economist, but I like to say I claim I kind of am. Uh, but but you know, the the fundamental point is we would say, well, how much do you how much does it cost to cut a ton of CO two? And the answer is for most electric cars, we're paying in the order of a thousand, two thousand. You know, Norway they they, they oh, yeah. pay up to what uh, five thousand dollars or thereabouts. You know, huge amount for one ton of CO two. Uh, you can right now cut a ton of CO two for about what is it fourteen dollars on the Reggie or something. Uh, you know, you can we'll regional, that's a regional greenhouse gas yeah. initiative. Uh, so yeah. you can basically cut it really, really cheaply. Why would we not want to cut? Dozens and dozens of tons of CO2 for the same price instead of just cutting one ton. And the simple answer is we only do that because we're so focused if, on electric. If I may interrupt, typical yeah. European, come here in Texas, tell me I can't <laughs> have my Ford F-150. But uh, I'll, 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 oh, now I'll, you can have your F-150 Lightning. That's, that's <laughs> true. Uh, I'm, I'm just joking. Yes. No, I know. Uh, but uh, what do you think about electric cars? If we could just linger in that moment and uh, yeah, this yeah. particular element of helping reduce uh uh, emissions. Well, you talked about the middle in the beginning, and you know, I loved moving to the hybrid. The Prius was fantastic; it did everything our other sedan did, but you know, it was sixty miles per gallon performance, and you don't have range anxiety because it has a regular engine too. We still have a Prius. We also inherited my dad, dear dad's year two thousand Toyota Sienna, which is an old hundred thousand mile uh, minivan. Mm-hmm. And we use it all the time to do the stuff we can't do in the in the Prius. Like what? Taking stuff to the dump. Oh, you mean in terms of the size of the vehicle? Yeah, get, yeah, size and just you know convenience factor for a bigger vehicle. Um, I would love a fully electrified transportation world. Uh, it's kind of exciting. I think what Elon did with Tesla. I remember way way back in the day when the first models were coming out. They were very slick Ferrari style. 
cars. And I thought, this is cool. And, you know, there's a history of privileged markets testing new technologies. And I'm, I'm all for that. Um, and I think it's done a huge service, prodding so much more R&D. And, you know, once GM and Ford started to realize, oh, my God, this is a real phenomenon, you know, getting them in the game. Uh, there was that documentary, Who okay. Killed the Electric Car, yeah. which seemed to imply that, uh, you know, there, was, there were fights to keep this tamped down. And it's, it's fundamentally cleaner, fundamentally better. If, but then you have to manage this, these bigger questions. If we're going to do a build-out here, how do you make it fair? As you were saying, who actually uses trans mm. cars? And Jigar Shah, that guy at the energy department I mentioned, who has all this money to give out, he he, he wants to give loans to, um, uh, if you had a, an Uber fleet, those Uber drivers, they're the ones who need electric cars. Mo as, as his work, and, and there was a, a recent story in Grist also, said that most of the sales of Teslas are the high end of the market. They're $60,000, $80,000 vehicles. Each, like the, the Hummer, the electric Hummer, I can't, there was a data point on that astonishing data point. The, the battery in that Hummer weighs more than, I'd have to look it up. It weighs more than Your a Prius. car. <laughs> yeah, I think it might've been a Prius. <laughs> and, and think of the material costs there. Think of where that battery, the cobalt and the lithium, where does this stuff come from? to build this stuff out. I'm all for it, but we have to be honest and clear about that's a new resource rush, like the oil rush back in the early 20th century. And, and those impacts have to be figured out too. And if they're all big hummers uh, for rich people, there's so many contrary arguments to that that I think um, we have to figure out a way we, I don't like the word we, I use it too much, we all do. But, um, we all do. <laughs> you usually refer when you say we, we humans. We society, we government, yeah. There has to be some thought and attention put to where you put these incentives so that you get the best use of this technology for, uh, for the carbon benefit, for the conventional sooty pollution benefit, for the transportation benefit. Can, can I step back and ask a sort of big question? We mentioned economics, journalism, uh, how does an economist and a climate scientist and a journalist uh, that writes about uh, climate see the world differently? What are the strengths and potential blind spots of each uh -huh. discipline? I mean, that, that's just sort of, just, just so people may, may be aware. I think you'd be able to fall into the economics camp a bit. There's climate scientists right. and there's climate scientists adjacent people like who hang some of my best friends are climate scientists kind of which is i think where you fall in because you're a journalist you've been writing it so you're not completely in the trenches of doing the work you're just stepping into the trenches every once in a while right. uh, so can, can you speak to that maybe bjorn like what's what does the world look like to an economist Let's try to empathize with these beings that, uh, you know. That unfortunately has fallen into the <laughs> <laughs> disreputable uh, economics. Yeah. So, so uh, I, I think, I think the, the, the main point that, that I've been trying for a long time, and I think that's also a little bit what Andy has been talking about. For a very long time, the whole conversation was about what does the science tell us as, is global warming real? And, and to me, it's much more, what can we actually do? What are the policies that we can take and how effective are they going to be so the conversation we just had about electric cars is, is a good example of how an economist think about look you gotta 
you, this is not a question about whether you feel morally virtuous or whether you know you can sort of display how much you care about the environment. This is about how much you actually ended up affecting the world. And the honest answer is that uh, you know electric cars right now in the next decade or so will have a fairly small impact, and unfortunately right now at a very high cost because we're basically subsidizing these things at five or $10,000 around the world uh, per, per car. That, that's just not, it's not really sustainable, but it's certainly not a very great way to cut carbon emissions. So I would be the kind of guy, and economists would be the types of people who would say, is there a smarter way where you, for less money, can, for instance, cut more CO2 and the obvious answer is yes that's what we've seen for instance with uh, fracking uh the the fact that the u.s went from a lot of coal to a lot of gas because gas became incredibly cheap because gas emits about half as much as uh, as, as coal does when you use it for elect uh, uh for power that basically cut more carbon emissions than pretty much any other single thing and we should get the rest of the world in some sense to frack because it's really cheap there are some problems, and absolutely, we can we can also have that conversation. There is no technology is problem free, but fundamentally, it's an incredibly cheap way to get people to cut a lot of CO two. It's not the final solution because it's still a fossil fuel, but it's a much better fossil fuel, if you will, and it's much more realistic to do that. So that's one part of the thing. The other one is when we talked about, for instance, uh, how do we help people in Florida who gets hit by a hurricane, or how do we hit uh, help people that get um, uh, uh, damaged in flash floods, the people who are in who are in uh, in heat waves, and the simple. The simple answer is there's a lot of very, very cheap and effective things that we could do first. So most climate people will tend to sort of say, we got to you know, uh, uh, get rid of all carbon emissions. We got to change our entire, uh, the, the engine that, uh, that, that sort of powers the world and has powered us for the last 200 years. And that's all good and well, but it's really, really hard to do. And it's probably not going to do very much. And even if you succeed it, it would only help you know, future victims of future Hurricane Ian's in Florida, a tiny, tiny bit at best. So instead, let's try to focus on not getting people to build right on the waterfront where you're incredibly vulnerable and where you're very likely to get hit, where we subsidize people uh, with uh, uh, with federal insurance again, which is just, you know, actually losing money. So we're much more about saying it's not a science question. I just take the science for granted. Yes, there is a problem with climate change, but it's much more about saying, how can we make smart decisions? Can I ask you about blind spots? When you reduce stuff to numbers, the costs and benefits, is there stuff you might miss about that are important to the flourishing of the human species? So everyone will have to say, of course, there must be blind spots. <laughs> but I don't know what they are. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, Andy, Andy would probably be better at telling me what they are. Uh, so we try to incorporate all of it, but obviously we're not successful. We, you can't incorporate everything, for instance, in a cost-benefit analysis. But, but the point is, in some way, um, I, I, I would worry a lot about this if we were, you know, sort of close to perfection human race we're doing almost everything right but we're not quite right then we need to get the last digits right but i think it's much more that you know and the the point that i, I tried to make before that we're all we're all focused on going to an electric car or you know something else rather than uh, fracking we're all focused on cutting carbon emissions instead of reducing vulnerability so we're, we're similarly getting it orders of magnitude wrong 
uh, and and while I'm sure I have blind blind spots, I think they're probably not big enough to to overturn that point. Andy, why is Bjorn and economists are all wrong about everything? Well, the models we could spend a, a model, whole day on yeah. models. Uh, there are economic models. There's this thing called optimization models. The, there were two big ones used to assess the U.S. plan, this new big IRA inf inflation reduction package, and they're fine. They're a starting point for understanding what's possible. But as it, this gets to the journalism part or the public part, you have to look at the caveats. You have to look at what model economists expressly exclude things that are not modelable. Hmm. And if you look in the fine print on the repeat project, the Princeton version of the assessment of the recent giant legislation, the fine print is the front page for me as a deep diving journalist, uh, because it says we didn't include any sources of friction, meaning right. resistance to putting new transmission lines through your community or uh, people who don't want um, mining in America because we've exported all of our mining. We mine our cobalt in Congo, you know, and trying to get a new mine in, in Nevada um, was a fraught fight that took more than 10 years for lithium. Um, so, so if you're excluding those elements from your model, which on the surface makes this $370 billion package have an emissions reduction trajectory that's really pretty good. And you're not saying in your first line, by the way, these are the things we're not considering. You could that's the job of a journalist. Summarize all of human history with that one word, friction. Yeah, yeah. Well, inertia, <laughs> friction implies there's a force that's already being resisted, but there's also inertia, which is a, a huge part of our, you know, uh, we, we have a status quo bias. Uh, the scientists that I, in, in grappling with the climate problem, as a journalist, I paid too much attention to climate scientists. <laughs> That's why all my articles focused on climate change. And it was 2006. I remember now pretty clearly, uh, I was asked by the Weekend Review section of the New York Times to write a sort of a weekend thumbsucker, we call them. on um, Thumbsucker? You know, you sit, you sit and th suck your thumb and think about something. Why is everybody so pissed off about climate change? It was after Al Gore's movie, the Al Gore movie came out, Inconvenient Truth, uh, Hurricane Katrina. It was a big Senator Inhofe in the Senate from Oklahoma. It wasn't yet throwing snowballs, but it was close to that. And so I looked into what was going on. Why is this so heated? In 2006, the, the story's called Yelling Fire on a Hot Planet. And that was the first time, this is after 18 years of writing about global warming. That was the first time I interviewed a social scientist not a climate scientist. Her name was Helen Ingram. She's at UC Irvine. And she laid out for me the factors that determine why people vote or what they vote for, what they think about politically. And they were the antithesis of the climate problem. She used the words, she said people go in the voting booth thinking about things that are soon, salient, and certain. And climate change is complex, you know, has long time scales. And, and that really jogged me. And, and then I, between 2006, 2010, I started interviewing other social scientists and I, I, this was by far the scariest science of all. It's the, the, the climate in our heads or inconvenient minds and in how that translates into 
political norms and stuff really became the monster, not the not the climate system. Is there social dynamics to the scientists themselves? Because uh, I've gotten to witness a kind of flocking behavior with scientists. So it's, it's almost like a flock of birds. Within the flock, there's a lot of disagreement and fun debates and everybody trying to prove each other wrong, but they're all kind of headed in the same direction. And, and you don't want to be the bird that kind of leaves that flock. <laughs> no. <laughs> so like, there's an idea that science is a mechanism will get us towards the truth, but it'll definitely get us somewhere, but it could be not the truth in the short term. In the long term, a bigger flock will come along and it'll get us to the truth. But there's a sense that I don't know if there's a mechanism within science to like, snap out of it if you're down the wrong track. Well, this Usually is, you uh, get it right, but all, sometimes you don't. It's, when you don't, it's very costly. And there's so many factors that, that line up to perpetuate that flocking behavior. One is media attention comes in. The other is funding comes in. Um, National Science Foundation or whatever, European foundations pour a huge amount of money into things related to climate. And so you're and then you, your narrative in your head is shaped by that aspect of the climate problem that's in the spotlight. I, I, I started using this hashtag a few years back, narrative capture, like be wary of narrative capture, where you're, you're on a train and everyone's getting on the train. And this is in the media too, not just science. And it becomes self, self-sustaining and, and contrary indications are ignored or downplayed. Um, no one does replication science because you don't. You, your career doesn't advance through replicating someone else's work. So those contrary indications are are, are not necessarily, you know, really dug in on. And this is for this is way beyond climate. This is of many fields. You, as you said, you might have seen this in AI. And it's really hard to find. Uh, it's another form of path dependency. The, the term I used before. The breaking narrative capture to me for me, has come mostly from stepping back and reminding myself of the basic principles of journalism. Journalism's basic principles are useful for anybody confronting a big, enormous, dynamic, complex thing is who, what, where, when, why. Just be really rigorous about not assuming because there's a fire in Boulder County or a flood in Fort Myers that climate, which is in your head because you're part of the climate team at the New York Times or whatever, is the front, is the foreground part of this problem. What's the psychological challenge of that if you incorporate the fact that if you uh, try to step back and have nuance, you might get attacked by the others in the flock? Oh, yeah. I was. Well, yeah, well you, you've certainly been. So trying. both of you get attacked yeah. continuously from different sides. So let me just ask about that. How does that feel? And how do you continue thinking clearly and uh, tr continuously try to have humility and step back and not get defensive in, in that uh, on as a communicator? I, I mean, there are other things happening at the same time, right? I'm now 35 years into, almost 40 years into my journalism career. So I have some independence. I, I'm free from the obligations of, you know, I don't really need my next paycheck. I live in Maine now in a house I love. Um, I own it outright. It's a great privilege and honor. And um, as a result of a lot of hard work. And and so I'm freer to think freely. 
uh, and I know my colleagues in newsrooms, when I was at the New York Times, in the newsroom, you become captive to a narrative, just as you do out in the world. Um, the New York Times had a narrative about, uh, about Saddam Hussein, drove us into that war. Uh, the Times sucked right into that and helped perpetuate it. Um, I think we're in a bit of a narrative. We, <laughs> the media, mm -hmm. my friends at the Times and others are on a train ride on climate change, depicting it in a certain way. Uh, that really, I saw problems with how they handled the Joe Manchin issue in America, the, the West Virginia senator. They really kind of piled on and zoomed in on his investments, which is really important to do, but they never pulled back and said, by the way, he's a rare species. He's a Democrat in West Virginia, and which is a seat that would be other, otherwise occupied by a Republican. There'd be no talk of a climate deal or any of that stuff without him. And but when you once you're starting to kind of frame a story in a certain way, you carry it along, and as you said, sometimes it breaks and a new norm arrives. But the, the climate train is still kind of rushing forward and missing the opportunity to cut it into its pieces and say, well, what's really wrong with Florida? And it's for me when you ask about how I handle the slings and arrows and stuff. It's it's partially because I'm past worrying about it too much. Um, I mean, it was pretty intense. 2009, Rush Limbaugh suggested I kill myself on his radio show. It's a really great What time. was that about? I, I had, actually, this was a meeting in Washington in 2009 on population at the Wilson Center. I couldn't be there. So actually, this is pre-COVID, but I was Zooming in or something, like Skyping in. And I was talking about, in a playful way, I said, well, if you really want to worry about Carbon. This was during the debate over a carbon tax model for a, a bill in America. We should probably uh, have a carbon tax for kids because a bigger family in America is a big source of more emissions. Yes. And it was kind of a playful thought bubble. Some right-wing blogger blogged about it. It got into Russia's you know pile of things to talk about. And and, and the clip is really fun. Uh, also, meaning so, so uh, if humans. Well, he's, are he's bad saying, for the it. environment. Oh, we can, uh, I can imagine. That's how you know you've made explicit. it. He said, Mr. Revkin of the New York, Andrew Revkin of the New York Times, if you really think that people are the worst thing that ever happened to this planet, why don't you just kill yourself and save the planet by dying? So that was now. tough for you. <laughs> it, was, it was tough for my family. Um, you know, to me, it did generate some interesting calls and stuff on my, my voicemail. And, um, but, in the, but on the left, I, I was also... Um, Undercut. Uh, Roger Pilkey Jr., a prominent researcher of climate risk and climate policy, UC Boulder, was actively, his career track was uh, derailed purposefully by people who just thought his message was too off, right. off the path. And you, uh, you know, you've been dealing with this for a very long oh, time. God, yeah, yeah. What, what do you... So, so yeah. look, look, I, I just want to get back to, so the science, I, I don't think the, the, the science get it so much wrong as it just becomes accepted to to make certain assumptions, as you just said, we we assume no friction. So, you yeah. know, there, there's, there's a way that you kind of model the world that ends up being also a convenient message uh, in many ways. And I think the the main convenient message in climate, and it's not surprising if you think about it, uh, you know, the main convenient message is that the best way to do something about all the things that we call climate is to cut CO2. 
And that turns out to only sometimes be true and uh, with, with a lot of caveats. But that's sort of the and message. it takes that, a long time. Yes, yes. It's to... really, really difficult to do in any meaningful sort of time frame. Uh, and, and, and if you challenge that, you, yes, you're outside the flock and you get attacked. I've always, uh, so uh, somebody told me once, uh, I think it's true, they say at the uh, at Harvard Law School, if you have a good case, pound the case. If you have a bad case, pound the table. Uh, and so I've always felt that when people go after me, they're kind of pounding the table. They're, you know, they're literally screaming, I don't have a good case. I'm really annoyed with what you're saying. And, and so to me, that actually means it's much more important to make this argument. Uh, sure, I mean, I would, I would love you know everyone just saying, "Oh, that's a really good point. I'm going to use that." But you know, uh, we're we're stuck in a situation, certainly in a conversation, where a lot of people have invested a lot of time and energy on saying we should cut carbon emissions. This is the way to help humankind. And and just be clear, I think we should cut carbon emissions as well. But we should also just be realistic about what we can achieve with that and what are all the other things that we could also do. Uh, and it turns out that a lot of these other things are much cheaper, much more effective, will help much more, much quicker. Uh, and so getting that point out is just incredibly important for us to get it right. So in, in some sense, you know, uh, uh, to make sure that we don't do another Iraq and we don't do another, uh, you know, Lots of stupid decisions. Uh, I mean, this this is one of the things mankind is very good at. Uh, and I guess uh, uh, I, I see my role, uh, and I think that's probably also how you see yourself, is trying to you know get everyone to do it slightly less wrong. So let me ask you about a deep psychological effect for you. There's also a drug of martyrdom. So whenever you stand against the flock, right? Yep. There's uh, you wrote a couple of really good books on the topic. The most recent, False Alarm. I stand as the holder of truth, that everybody who is alarmist is wrong. And here's just simple, calm way to express the facts of the matter. And that's very compelling to a very large number of people. They wanna make a martyr out of you. Is that, are you worried about your own mind uh, being corrupted by that, by enjoying standing against the crowd. No, no, no. Uh, there's, there's very little. Uh, I, I, I guess I can see what you're saying, sort of in a literary way or something. Yeah. But there's, so there's being very poetic there, here. Yeah, there's, there's very little comfort or, or, or sort of usefulness in, in, in annoying a lot of people. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it just, it just, you know, whenever I go to a party, for instance, I know that there's a good chance people are going to be annoyed with me. Uh, and I would love that not to be the case. But what I try to do is, you know, uh, uh, so I, I try to be very polite and, you know, sort of not push people's buttons unless they, they sort of actively say, so you're saying all kind of stupid stuff on the climate, right? Uh, and then try to engage with them and say, well, what, what is it you're thinking about? And hopefully, you know, during that party, and then it ends up being a really bad party for me. But anyway, so I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll you know, I'll end up possibly convincing one person that I'm not totally stupid. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm not playing the martyr and I'm not enjoying that. <laughs> the, it's so interesting. The, uh, I mean, the, the um, martyr complex is all around the climate question. Uh, Michael Mann at the far end of the spectrum of activism from where Bjorn is, uh, was a climate scientist, is a climate scientist who uh, was actively attacked by um, Inhofe and West and Virginia politicians. And 
really abused in many ways. He had come up with a very prominent model of looking at long-term records of climate change and got this hockey stick for temperature. Uh, and he, you know, he definitely sits there in a certain kind of spotlight because of that. Um, so it's not unique at any particular vantage point in the the spectrum of uh, sort of prominent people on the debate. Andrew, you co-wrote the book, The Human Planet, Earth at the Dawn of the Anthropocene, which is the new age when humans are actually having an impact on, on the environment. Let me ask the question of what do you find most beautiful and fascinating about our planet Earth? It would be cheap to say everything, but just walking here this morning under the bridge uh, over the Colorado River, seeing the birds, knowing there's bat colonies, massive bat colonies around here that I got to visit a few years ago. I experienced one of those bat <laughs> explosions. It's mind-blowing. Uh, the, the, I've been really lucky as a journalist to have gone to the North Pole, the, the camp on the sea ice uh, with Russian help, uh, this, a camp that was set up for tourists coming from Europe every year. There were scientists on the sea ice floating on the 14,000-foot-deep Arctic Ocean, and I was with them for several days. I wrote a book about that, too, um, along with my reporting. I've been in the depths of the Amazon rainforest. I've been, uh, when I was very young, I was a crew on a sailboat that sailed two-thirds of the way around the world. I, I was halfway across the Indian Ocean, again, in 14,000-foot deep water. We were just, there was no wind. And we were, uh, this is before, way before I was a journalist, 22, 23 years old. And we went swimming. And swimming in 14,000-foot deep water, uh, you know, 500 miles from land, the Western Indian Ocean, halfway between uh, Somalia and the Maldives, is it like so mind-boggling, chillingly fantastical thing with a mask on, looking at your shadow, going to the vanishing point below you, looking over at the boat, which is a 60-foot boat, but it just looks like a toy, and then getting back on and being beholden to the elements, the sailboat, you know, heading toward... Uh, Djibouti. So the immensity and the power oh my of the God. elements. And then, you know, and then um, the human qualities are unbelievable. You know, the Anthropocene, I played a bit of a role as a journalist in waking people up to the idea that this, this era called the Holocene, the last 11,000 years, you know, since the last ice age, had ended. I wrote my 1992 book on global warming, thinking about all that we're just talking about, thinking about the wonders of the planet, thinking about the impact of humans so far in our explosive growth in the 20th century, I wrote that perhaps Earth scientists of the future will name this post-Holocene era for uh, for its formative element for us, uh, because we're kind of in charge in certain ways, you know, which is hubristic at the same time. It's like, you know. The variability of the climate system is still profound without, with or without global warming. So this immense, powerful, beautiful organism that is Earth, the all the yeah. different suborganisms that are on it, do you see humans as a kind of parasite on this Earth? No, or no. Do you see it as a um, as something that helps the flourishing of the entire organism? That can can intelligence that hasn't yet hasn't yet. I mean, is are is aren't we on a so the, the ability of the collective intelligence of the human species to develop all these kinds of technologies and to be able to uh, have Twitter to introspect onto itself. Of who is, <laughs> we who, oh, well, we do. I think, you know, I think we're doing a, we're, it's always, in a way we are, it's catch up. We're always in catch up mode, you know, um, 
Right. Uh, I was at the Vatican for a big meeting in 2014 on sustainable humanity, sustainable nature, our responsibility. And it was a week of um, presentations by like Martin Rees, who's this famed British scientist, a physicist who- Been astronomer. on this podcast. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, he's, great. you know, he, he's fixated on existential risk, right? Yes, he is. So there's a week of this stuff. And um, the meeting was was kicked off by, um, I, I wrote about it in the, the Cardinal Maradiaga, who is, I think, from El Salvador. He's one of the Pope's kind of posse. He gave one of the initial speeches. And he said, nowadays, mankind looks like a technical giant and an ethical child, meaning our technological wizardry is unbelievable, but it's way out in front of our ability to step back and kind of like consider in the full dimensions we need to, is it helping everybody? Is it, uh, what, what are the consequences of CRISPR, uh, you know, genetics technology? And there's no single answer to that. If, if I'm in the African Union, I'm just using this as an example. CRISPR has emerged so fast, it can do so much by changing the nature of nature Will in, in, in a kind of a programming way, not, you know, building genes, not just transferring them from one organism to another. We've only just begun to taste the fruits of that, literally. Um, um, and it can wipe out a mosquito species. We know how to do that now. You can like literally take out the dengue-causing mosquito. The scientists have done the work. And you think, okay, cool. Well, that's great. Uh, now it, there's this big fight over whether that should happen. Uh, African Union, and I'm with their view, says, hey, if we can take out a mosquito species that's causing horrific, chronic loss through dengue, which I had once in Indonesia, it's not fun, and um, we should do it, you know? And What's Europe, the other side of the argument? The European Union, uh, they're, uh, they're saying, using their capital P precautionary principle, says, no, we can't meddle with nature. <laughs> right. And this is just like we were talking with climate. You know, there's the real-time question and the long-term question. And, and there's the uh, people who are just facing the need to get through the day and, and be healthy and survive and have enough food, which is not integrated sufficiently at all into the climate, stop climate change debate. And those who like are trying to cut CO2, which will have a benefit, uh, you know, in the future by limiting the fat tail outcomes of this uh, journey we're on. So, so when I think about the Anthropocene, I think about this planet. I love that we're here right now. I love that our species has these capacities. I would love for there to be a little bit more reflection in where things come from and where they might go. Whether you're a student, a kid, um, uh, what's your role? The, the wonderful thing about the complexity of it is everyone can play a role. If you're an artist, uh, or a designer, or an architect, or an economist, <laughs> or a podcaster, whatever you do, just tweak a little bit toward um, examining these questions, stepping back from the simplistic label throwing toward what actually is the problem in front of me, whether it's in Pakistan, or, or in um, Austin, or wherever, you know, Florida. Bjorn, what do you find beautiful about this collective intelligence machine we have? From an economics perspective, it's kind of fascinating that we're able to, there's, there is a machine to it that we've built up hmm. that's able to represent interests and desires and value and hopes and dreams 
in sort of monetary ways um, that we can trade with each other, we can make agreements with each other, we can represent our goals and build companies that actually help and, and so on. Do you just step back every once in a while and marvel at the fact that a few billion of us are able to somehow not create complete chaos and actually collaborate and, and have uh, collaborative disagreements that ultimately or so far have left led to progress? I, th I think fundamentally the point, uh, apart from the fact that you know we should just be joyful of the fact that uh, humans live here, uh, I think it's incredibly important to remember how much progress we've had. Uh, you know, most people just don't stop to think about this. That's and, you know, I, I get that in the normal bustle of, uh, of day, but just you know, uh, in 1900, the average person on the planet lived to be 32 years. 32 years, that was our average life expectancy. Uh, today, it's about 74. Uh, so we've literally got two lifetimes on this planet, each one of us. And, and you know, every year you live in, in the rich world, you get to live three months longer, and the poor world is about four months longer. Because of medical advances, because we get better at dealing both with cancer and especially uh, right now with, uh, with heart uh, disease, uh, these are amazing achievements. Of course, it's a very, very small part of it. We're much better fed. We're much better educated. We've gone from a world where virtually everyone, or 90% you know, were, were illiterate, to a world where more than 90% illiterate. This is an astounding opportunity. And, and 200 years ago, 95%, 94% of the world were extremely poor. That is less than a dollar a day. Today, that uh, for, for the first time in 2015, it was down below 10%. So there, and, and again, these are kind of boring statistics, but they're also astounding uh, testaments yeah. of how how well humanity has done. So just on 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 the point of uh, we've kind of just been focused on making our own world better, uh, and in many ways, you know, so we've hunted a lot of uh, big uh, animals either to extinction or uh, down to much much smaller populations. There's much smaller populations of fish in the ocean. So yeah. there's a lot of, uh, of of things that that sort of bear the brunt of our success. Not it's not because we're evil in that sense. It's just because yeah. we didn't all care all that much about them. Uh, I think it is important as one funnel of that. I, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it, uh, but the fact that we're putting out more CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, because CO2, is, as you also mentioned before, it's actually plant food. Uh, you know, uh, if, if you're, if you're a, a greenhouse grower, you know if you put in CO2 in your greenhouse, you actually get bigger and plumper tomatoes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's essentially what we're doing in the world. This has overall bad consequences, and, and that's why we should be doing something about it. Uh, but one of the good side effects is actually that the world is getting greener. Uh, so we get much more green stuff. Now, I don't know, and, and this is where I show, sort of show my economist uh, roots, uh, mm -hmm. because if you just m measure all living stuff in, uh, in tons, uh, so in weight, there's actually more living stuff than there were a hundred years ago yeah. uh, because elephants and uh all these other you know big fish and stuff are actually a really really small fraction of the world uh so the, 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 yeah the, the fact that we have yes so we have an enormous amount of life stuff but that yeah. doesn't even measure it it's mostly just wood uh, yeah. the, you know wood and green stuff that, yeah, has, yeah. that has dramatically increased in the world now we're still not there from what it was in 1500. So uh, we've, we've still cut down the world a lot, but we're actually making a much greener world. Again, 
not because we really cared or thought about it, but just sort of a side effect of what we're doing. I think the crucial bit to remember is when you're poor and you worry about what's going to happen the next day, this is just not your main issue. Yeah. You know, am I killing too many large uh, animals in, in the world? But when you're rich and, and you can actually sit in a podcast in, in a convenient place in Austin, you can also start thinking about this. So one of the crucial bits, I think, if we want to get the rest of the world to care about the environment, care about climate, care about all these other issues, we really need to get them out of poverty first. Uh, and it's and, a simple and, point that we often forget. And get them connected to all the, these gifts. Yes. Um, I, I, I have these memories of, well, I was reporting on the next big earthquake that's going to devastate Istanbul in 2009. I was in a slum, a immigrant poor neighborhood, and walking around with an engineer pointing out to the buildings that were going to fall down. This is all known. There was an earthquake in 1999 and the next one's coming. One of my advantages in covering climate is I've covered other kinds of disasters too. So it keeps my context, you know, me in touch with other things we can do. So I'm walking around and interviewing everybody. I went to the school that's being retrofit. They actually were getting ahead of it there. The World Bank provided some funding to put in iron bars in the brick building. And and I, I met these kids um, and they came, when you're a journalist with a camera and stuff and a pad, you get swarmed by kids, uh, mostly in developing countries. And so these kids are running up to me and they weren't going like, are you American? Or just, they were saying Facebook, Facebook. <laughs> and I went, that's interesting. And I, they led me to their little town, a little community center that had a bank of eight or 10 pretty flimsy computers. Mm -hmm. And they were all there playing a farm. There was a game that was hot at that time on Facebook. Farm. farm. <laughs> Farmville? Farmville, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, my son back in the Hudson Valley, I remember him playing it, and and I thought, wow, that is so freaking cool. These kids, and actually I became Facebook friends with a couple of them afterwards. Uh -huh. We traded our, and I th thought back to my youth when we had pen pals. I would write a letter to a kid in West Cameroon, and he would write back. And it took weeks, and it was a crinkly letter, and I never met him. And now you can kind of connect with people and and that that all through my blogging, you know, at the New York Times, I was doing my regular reporting, but I launched a blog in 2007 called Dot Earth, which was all about what you were just describing, the newest sphere, the connected world. That's a term from uh, these two earliest 20, a Russian guy, an early Vernadsky and a French uh, theologian and scientist, which is so interesting, uh, Teilhard de Chardin. They had this idea in the early 20th century that uh, we we're creating a planet of the mind, that, that human intelligence can foster a better Earth. Um, and I, I just became smitten with that, especially meeting kids in Istanbul slums who are on Facebook looking at connectedness. What can you do with these tools? Which is what drives me, you know, with my work now. And um, but then th there are these counter counter currents that. If the connectedness can cut back, you know, it allowed Al Qaeda to recruit, use decapitation videos to recruit distributed, dis disaffected young people into extremism. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of these systems are not, they're just like every other tool, right? They're just for good or ill. And, and the efficiency thing, the, the economics 
of the world, which I also wrote about a little bit. You know, late 20th century, it was so cool that everything became so efficient, that our supply chains, just-in-time manufacturing, you know, uh, getting the, the stuff from where the sources of the material are to the car factory and to get the car to the floor just in time for someone to buy it. And, the, and everyone got totally sucked in by that, including me. It's, it's great, you know, super efficient, cheaper. And then COVID hit and the whole supply chain concept crumbled. And one of the big lessons there, hopefully, and this is relevant to sustainability generally, is efficiency matters, but 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 resilience matters too. And resilience is inefficient. You need redundancy or or a variety of options, right? Which is not what companies think about, which is not what, if you're only focused on a bottom line, short-term timeline, those disruptions are not what you're thinking about. You're still thinking about, can we get that widget here just in time for this thing to happen? And then on we go. So it's kind of, I love the noosphere, this newosphere idea. The connectedness is fantastic. Oh, another thing, like in the early 90s, when I wrote my first book on global warming, it was for an exhibition at the Museum of Natural History. Um, the Environmental Defense Fund was involved. They were like a partner, one of these longstanding environmental groups. And they were very old-fashioned. It was mostly lawyers, really, just using the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act to litigate against pollution. And now, EDF is vastly bigger. And they're actually, this coming year, they're launching a satellite. A, an environmental group is launching methane sat. And it's providing a view, an independent view of where there's this gas. You know, it's the same thing. Natural gas is basically methane. So if you have a leak, whether it's in Siberia or in Oklahoma, you can cross-reference, you can ground, you can identify the, the hotspot, you can know where the problem is to fix in so many ways. And that's just one example. I'm like, if someone had told me in 1993 that EDF was going to launch a <laughs> methane satellite, I would have laughed out loud. So technology plays a huge role if it's kind of, you know, employed with these the bigger vision and leadership. So Bjorn, you wrote one of the books you wrote, the most recent one called False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Good title, by the way, very intense, makes me want to read it. <laughs> what is likely the worst effect of climate change? First, let me just, uh, my, my uh, editor actually hated the subtitle because it gives away the whole book. <laughs> it right. basically yes. tells you what the book tries to make. I, I, I think, you know, that's exactly what it should be. It's about getting this uh, conversation out in the, in, in the public sphere. So the worst thing that climate change can do is like the worst thing that anything can do is that it wipes out everything and we all die. So it's, it's not like, you know, if you just go looking for worst case outcomes, uh, you know, anything can get to the worst case outcome. Um, imagine if we, uh, what's the worst thing that could happen from HIV? It breaks down uh, 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 one or more African states because we don't fix it. Uh, and then you get sort of uh, biological warfare and terrorism throwing that in the mix. And then you get someone who makes a virus and kills the whole world. You know, you can make worst case scenarios sure, but, for everything. Well, let's just call it, so, I, I get the point, and I'm sorry for the interruption, and, and I appreciate worst case analysis because I am fundamentally a computer scientist and that was the thing that defined the discipline of the, to measure the quality of it, the algorithm, you measure what is its worth, worst case performance. That's the big O notation, that's how you discuss algorithms. What is the worst possible thing 
uh, in terms of performance this thing can do. But for climate change, let's even go crazy. What is exactly the worst case scenario for climate change? Because uh, I have to be honest and say, I haven't uh, really paid it deep attention. I just have a lot of colleagues who think about climate and so on. And there's a kind of, in the alarmism, there was a sense why well, this, is, this is a very serious problem. Yeah. And then the sentence would never finish. Yeah. What exactly is the problem? Well, the extinction of the human species, okay. With a virus, I understand how that can possibly happen. What is the mechanism by which the human species becomes extinct because of climate change? I'm not sure I would want to be able to argue that because it really requires you to have sort of very, very extreme parameter choices all down the line. And so it's more, you know, it's this kind of idea that we that we hit some of these unexpected uh, outcomes. So for instance, uh, the West Antarctic ice sheet uh, melts really, really quickly. It doesn't look like that can happen really, really quickly, but let's just you know say that this could happen within a hundred years or something. Uh, so we basically get what, um, seven meters, what is that, 20 feet of, of sea level rise. Uh, that will be a real challenge to a lot of places around the world. This would have, you know, significant costs. Uh, it's likely, and, you know, there's actually been a study that's tried to estimate, could we deal with that? And the, this, the short answer is yes, if you're fairly well off, you know, if you're Holland, you can definitely deal with it. Uh, it's also likely that most Developing countries are going to be much closer to Holland towards the end of the century because they'll be much richer. So they can probably handle it, but it will be a real challenge. May I ask a dumb question? Yeah. What happens when the sea level rises exactly? What is the painful aspect of that? It is that all of your current infrastructure in a lot of coastal cities around the world that are literally built on, you know, Jakarta is a good example, that are literally built on the of just you know uh, inches above the sea level uh if if you then get a sea level rise they'll rise say what would uh 20 feet of that would be like a third or a fourth of a of a foot every year yeah uh, kind of thing. I, yeah. I see no evidence that that's even but hold on a second let's we're not talking about evidence no okay. talking but, okay. about worst case analysis yeah. and algorithm and uh, and so so basically you would see your infrastructure all all your stuff very quickly being very very challenged and you basically have to put up huge seawalls uh, or uh, migrate out of that area. Very quickly. Well, but very, very quickly, quickly as in, in 50 years or something. Right. right? So like, uh, is that as a human species, we're not able to respond to that of, kind of Of course threat? we are. And, and look, again, the, the point here is, then there's there's a lot of other arguments, and I, I should just you know put the disclaimer: this is not what I think is correct. But you know, you're asking me what's the what's the worst case outcome that you have? Uh, uh, so most of global warming is really about that we we're used to one way of doing things. So you know, we we live in Jakarta because it's right next to the sea. We're used to the sea being at this level. Uh, we grow our crops. Because we're used to, you know, you grow a corn here, you grow wheat here, because we're used to that's where the precipitation and the uh, temperature is the right for this kind of crop. If this changes, and this is the same thing with, with you know, with houses, if it gets colder, if it gets warmer, it's suddenly uncomfortable because you've built your house wrong. Yeah. So our infrastructure will be wrong if the world changes. And that's what climate change At does. a large scale. Uh, yes. And so this is a problem in most of these senses, 
But if you then sort of take it to the extreme and say, well, imagine that you're going to get a huge sea level rise. Imagine that you're going to get a very different sort of precipitation. For instance, the the uh, uh, what is it? The rain season, rain monsoon, and 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 the Indian subcontinent uh, changes uh, uh, dramatically. That could affect a lot of agriculture and make it really hard to imagine that you could feed India well. There, there are these kinds of things where you can imagine. Uh, and then uh, that this would be very difficult to deal with. And then if you add all of it up, you could possibly get sort of a system collapse because, you know, you just have too many problems. In it's one. impossible to model those kinds of things. So yeah. what, what I understand is the sea level rise itself isn't the destructive thing. It's, it's the fact that it creates migration patterns and human tension, battle over resources. And so you start to get these these human things, human conflict. So the big negative impact won't be necessarily from the fact that you have to move your house. It's the fact that once you move your house, that means something else down the line. And it's the secondary tertiary effects that can have potentially to wars, military conflict, can have destabilized entire economies, all that kind of stuff because of the migration pattern. Is it possible to model those kinds of things? So there are people who looked at this and, and, and surprisingly, again, you know, most people will move within their country for a lot of different reasons, but, you know, mainly language and, and, and political structure. You have your money, you have your relationships there. So it's not like we're going to see these big moves, you know, from, uh, from, uh, from the Southern Mexico and, uh, and Central America up to the U.S. or from Africa up to the EU. That's not predominantly because of climate. That's because there is a lot of, you know, uh, there's a lot of wealth fair opportunity. Uh, you can make your life much, much better. You can become much more productive if you move into a richer, uh, in, into a richer country. So, so yes, there are these issues. Again, uh, you, you're asking me for sort of what is it that could really sort of break down the world. I think the, the fundamental point is to recognize that it's not like we haven't dealt with huge challenges in the past. And we've dealt with them really well. So uh, just one fun thing, uh, I encourage everyone to just look that up on, on Wikipedia, the rising of Chicago. So in the, uh, in the 1850s, uh, Chicago was a terribly uh, 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 dirty place and they didn't have good sewers. And so they decided, and it, we can't really make up all my, they decided to raise Chicago one to two feet. And so they simply took one block at a time. They put like 50,000 jacks underneath a mm -hmm. building and they would just raise the building and then they'd go on to the next building. They raised all of Chicago one or two feet. This is, you know, almost 200 years ago. Of course, we will be able to deal with these things. I'm not saying it'll be, it'll be fun or that it'll be cheap. Of course, we would rather not have to deal with this, but we're a very inventive species. And so it's very unlikely that we'll not be able to what deal about with these things. Issue. COVID pandemic just said, hold my beer. Uh, the response of human civilization to the COVID pandemic seems to have not, they didn't find the carjacks. <laughs> oh, mm. yeah. It seems so, to have not been as effective as I would have hoped uh, for uh, as, as a human that believes in the, in the basic competence of mm. uh, leadership and all that kind of stuff. It seems that given the, the, the COVID pandemic, luckily did not turn out to be a pandemic that's, that would eradicate most of the human species, which is something you always have to consider and worry about, that I would have hoped we would have less economic impact and we would respond more effectively and um, 
in terms of policy, in terms of socially, medically, all that kind of stuff. So if the, if the COVID pandemic brought the world to its knees, then what does a sea level rise? So I think there's a different kind of thing that happened in, in, the, in the COVID. So politicians, and a lot of politicians, I think, made certainly suboptimal decisions. But I also find the fact that we actually managed to get a vaccine in a right. year. Uh, we should not be uh, you know, sort of unaware of the fact that, yes, we did a lot of stupid stuff and a lot of people were really, really annoyed. But fundamentally, we fixed this. Uh, we could have done it better and prettier. I mean, I, I uh, uh, rode through uh, the COVID pandemic in southern Sweden. Uh, so, uh, and uh, yes, we, we can have that whole conversation. It was certainly a much easier uh, to live there than, uh, than many other places. But the fundamental point was we actually fixed it. So yes, we'll do, uh, and we'll do that with climate. We'll make a lot of bad decisions and we'll waste a lot of money like we do with all other problems. But it's, are we going to fix this? Yeah. Can you add on to that okay. uh, uncomfortable discussion of, of what's the worst thing that could yeah. possibly happen? I'm not worried about the sea level rise component, N certainly not nearly as much as the, the heat and disruption of agriculture patterns and water supplies. And a lot of it relates to, again, path dependency and history. Uh, farmers are the heroes of humanity all through history because they're incredibly adaptable. Uh, if you give them access to resources, uh, in some cases, it's just crop insurance, which is really basically still impossible to get in big chunks of Africa to get you through those hard spots. But but the heat issue is the one that's most the most base basic element related to global warming from CO two buildup is uh, hotter heat waves. There's still some lack of evidence of the intensification, but the duration and and that's really matters for heat is how many days seems to be very powerfully linked to global warming. And uh, so how many people die as a result of that is important. So we're talking about, maybe you can also educate me. What's the average projection for the next hundred years of the temperature rise? Is it two, two degrees Celsius? Well, yeah. Three? Although this gets us into the modeling realm. Um, you're, you're assuming, you have to assume different emissions possibilities. You have to assume we still don't know the, the basic physics, like how many clouds form in a warming climate and how that relates to limiting warming. Uh, there are aspects of the warming, the fundamental warming question that are still deeply uncertain. But the debate is like two, three, or four Celsius. It's in that range. But the thing is, all of those are, are bad for, this is an educational question. Sure. It uh, doesn't seem like that much from a weather perspective, if you just turn up the AC and so on in your own personal yeah, yeah. home. Uh, but it is, from a global perspective, a huge impact on agriculture. Well, yeah, and, and getting back to sea level and glaciers, the, the, the melting point of ice is a, is a number. Yeah. And so if you pass that number, things change, start to change. What became known about Antarctica and Greenland more is that it's ocean temperature the, the seawater in and around and under these ice sheets, because it kind of gets under parts of Antarctica, is what's driving the dynamics that could lead to more abrupt change, more than air temperature. Uh, glaciers, these big ice sheets live or die based on how much snow falls and how much ice leaves every year. And I was up on the Greenland ice sheet in um, 2004 and written about it forever since then. You know, it's 
it's the same amount of water that's in the Gulf of Mexico as if you know God or some great force came down and flash flows the Gulf of Mex Mexico and plunked it up on land. That's that's the ice sheet. It's a lot of water. That's twenty three feet of, of sea level rise. If you, but you were not going to melt it all, <laughs> and the pace at which that erosion begins and becomes sort of a runaway train is still not well understood. That change from like a manageable level of sea level rise from these ice sheets to something that becomes truly unstoppable or that has these discontinuities where you get a lot more all of a sudden is in, to me, it's in the realm of what I've taken to calling known unknowables. Like don't count on another IPCC report magically including science that says, aha, now we know it's going to exactly be this, yeah. five feet by 2100. Because learning, there's a lot of negative learning in science. This may be true in your body of science too. Um, there's a guy named Jeremy Bassis, B-A-S-S-I-S, who wrote a paper about the this West Antic, the, the idea that you could get this um, sudden cliff breakdown of these ice shelves around Antarctica leading to rapid sea level rise. He did more modeling in physics, and it turns out that you end up with it's a much more progressive and self-limiting phenomenon. But those papers don't get any attention in the media because- They're not scary. They're not <laughs> scary and they're sort of after the fact. You know, Just this past year, there's been this cycle around uh, collapse, the word collapse and Antarctic, uh, Antarctic ice. Um, it started uh, actually several years ago with the idea that this, the West Antarctic ice sheet is particularly vulnerable. And some paper, everyone, the science community, like the birds we were talking about, flocks to it, and uh, some high-profile papers are written. And then a deeper inquiry reveals, eh, you know, it's more complicated than that. And we, the journalists, the media, uh, pundits, don't pay attention to that stuff. So, so, And actually, which is why I've started to develop kind of a dictionary. I, I call it watchwords, like words to, if you're out there, you're, you, you know, you're just a public per you're a person and you want to know what's really going on. You hear these words like collapse in the context of ice. What do you do with that? And so I've created conversations around these words. Geologists and ice scientists use the word collapse. They're talking about a centuries long process. They're not talking about the World Trade Center. And scientists would do well to be more careful with words like that. Unless your focus is what we were saying earlier, your idea that alarming people will spur them to act, then you use that word carelessly. Uh, can I can I just follow up on the on the other point that you said? You know, two, three, four degrees. You know, that doesn't sound like much. I can just crank up the air air conditioning. I think that sort of touches on a really really important point that for most rich people, much of climate change is not really going to be all that impactful. It still will have an impact, but fundamentally, if you're well off you can mitigate a lot of these impacts. And there's a young scientist at Carnegie Mellon, Destiny Nock. She just was the lead author on a study of what poor and prosperous households do in a heat wave when they have access to air conditioning. In a poor household, you wait, they found through science, uh, they delay turning on the air conditioner four to seven degrees more of heating before they start to use the air conditioner. And that create adverse outcomes. If you have an asthmatic in the house, an old person, you're, in, you're endangering, endangering their lives. And that's just a little tiny microscopic fractal 
example of the, the, this powerful real phenomenon that there's a divide in vulnerability and it's not just based on where you live. This is families in like Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. not, we're not talking about you know Botswana. And so that, that divide in capacity to deal with um, environmental stress is something you can really work on. And yeah. it gets hidden in all this talk of climate crisis. People and and, and that, that's one of the important parts is, is both to say, look, if 7 billion people, sorry, 8 billion people will now have all uh, experienced this, even though for each one of them it's manageable, it's still a big problem because it's, you know, 8 billion people living through this. And, and the second- condition 8 billion. Yes. <laughs> and and then it's, uh, it's, the, it's the point of getting to realize it's very, very much about how do you help the world's poor? And that's very much about making it more affordable, uh, you know, basically getting them out of poverty. And remember, getting out of poverty doesn't just mean that they can now afford to air condition themselves, but they get better air, uh, they get better education, they get better opportunities, they get, you know, better lives in so many other ways. And then at the end of it, it is, it's not just about making sure that we focus on this one problem, but it's recognizing that these families and, uh, and have, have lots of different issues that they would like us to focus on climate and, and heat waves just being one of them. Uh, so, you know, it's sort of taking progressive steps back and realizing, all right, okay, this is a problem, not the end of the world. And one tiny little last example, you mentioned Jakarta at the beginning. It's really valuable to look around the world at places that are sort of leading indicator places whether it's sea level rise or heat. Um, and you could do that. Um, Jakarta is sinking hmm. like a foot a year, literally a foot a year. It's, it's some insane number from withdrawing groundwater, from uh, a gas withdrawal from, it's a delta, you know, it's sediment, it's built on sediment. I wrote a piece ages, ages ago at the New York Times calling it Delta Blues, you know, I'm a musician. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Jakarta, so what are they doing? They're moving, they're moving the capital to um, uh, another area. At, and th so that says to me, there's a lot of plasticity too. It's it's a city that's going through this, that rate of sea level, of their relationship with the sea level through sinking is way faster than what's happening with global warming. So look there, look to those kinds of places and you can start to build. Tokyo had, this, had the same thing in the 1930s. They were also withdrawing uh, lots of water way too fast. Uh, and and so, you know, one of the obvious things is maybe you should stop withdrawing water so fast. Yeah, and, and again, we seem to almost be intent on finding the most politically correct way to fix a problem or, you know, the most, uh, the thing that sort of gets the most clicks instead of the thing that actually works the best. Uh, so a lot of these things are really, you know, not rocket science solutions. Well, we'll get there. Let me add one more on, on top of the pile of the worst case analysis. So what people talk about, which is hurricanes and earthquakes, does is there a connection that's well understood between climate change and uh, the increased frequency and intensity of hurricanes and earthquakes. I've dug in on both a lot. Uh, the earthquake connection to climate change, I'm not worried about compared to the, just the earthquake risk that we live with in many parts of the world already. The Himalayas, even with that earthquake in 2015 in Kathmandu, that whole range is overdue for major earthquakes. And what has happened in the last 50 years since they last had big earthquakes, huge development, big cities, a lot of informal construction, like the stuff I wrote about in Istanbul, where the family builds another layer and another, they put a floor on every time someone gets married and has kids, <laughs> you put another floor in your house. And unfortunately, that's, you, you know, the what was the term? This Turkish um, 
engineer um, r- rubble in waiting. Rubble in waiting. It's rubble in waiting, and we're looking at it. You know, I'm videotaping it, and there are people playing there. Uh, so I don't worry about the earthquake connection to climate change. The hurricanes I've written about for decades, um, and the most illuminating body of science that I've dug in on, literally. <laughs> Related to hurricanes is this field that's emerged. It gets a tiny bit of money compared to like climate modeling. It's called paleotempestology. It's like paleontology, you know. Mm-hmm. They look for evidence of past hurricanes along coasts that we care about. And they dig down into the lagoons behind like the barrier beaches uh, along Florida or the Carolinas or in Puerto Rico. And what you have is a history book of past hurricanes. So there's this mud, 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 you know, accumulating over centuries. And then there's a layer of sand and seashells. And what that indicates is that there was a great storm that came across the beach, pushed a lot of sediment into the mud. And then there's mud, 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 mud. And when you look at that work, I first wrote about this in 2001 in the Times, in a long story. And then I've kept track of these intrepid scientists putting these core tubes down and it shows you that we're in a landscape where big, bad hurricanes are not, they're the norm, but something that's rare and big is something that's extreme. When you think about the word extreme, right? It means it's at the end of the spectrum of what's possible. They're rare, rare in human time scales. Um, Hurricane Michael, four years ago, devastated, Category 5 came ashore in the Panhandle of Florida, leveled that much photographed town, Mexico Beach. And um, people were, actually, the Tallahassee National Weather Service said, unprecedented hurricane. And the damage was unprecedented because there hadn't been a community there before. But the hurricane was not unprecedented at all. If you look at the history, and this is published research, it's just that no one bothers to, we have this blind spot for um, the longer time scale you need to examine if you're thinking about big, bad things that are rare. And hurricanes are still rare. I was recently covering Fort Myers, the the awful devastation. There's a young uh, climate scientist at Florida Gulf Coast University, Joe Muller, who's done that paleotempestology work there, right in Fort Myers. She lives there, and she was away in London at a meeting of reinsurance companies that reinsure all the world's big, bad risks when this was happening. But she has done the work that shows uh, it's a thousand-year record of past hurricanes, and it's super sobering. When you consider how fast people have moved into Florida and built vulnerably in an area that hurricanes will hammer, that's part of the fundamental dynamics of the Gulf of Mexico and these storms come off of Africa. It's a place where they will come. Now, the question of global warming impact is subtle. There are aspects of hurricanes that haven't changed. There's aspects like rainfall that seem pretty powerfully linked to global warming. A warmer atmosphere holds more moisture, so when you have a big disturbance, like a the heat engine of a hurricane comes through it, you get more rain. Um, there's rapid intensification. You know how how quickly these storms jump from like you know category one to five or four before they hit is an, is a new area of science. So I think it's still early days in knowing because no one was looking for that. There were no data back 300 years ago. You know when these big, bad previous hurricanes came to know whether they were rapidly intensified or not. So I, I, as a journalist, I try to, you know, keep track of what we don't know, not be too constrained and 
thinking about new science as being, you know, robust unless it's considering and actually actively stating we don't really know what's going on with earlier Harkins. And all of that is swamped ultimately, literally, by the vulnerability, building vulnerability in these areas. You know, if if there's a marginal change in a storm and you've quadrupled or sextupled how much stuff and how many people are in the way, and if some of those people are poor and vulnerable or elderly and can't swim, you're creating a landscape of destruction. So a lot of the human suffering that has to do with storms is about where and how you build versus the frequency and the intensity of storms. Still, you didn't quite answer (laughs) the question. uh, You know, when I'm having a beer with people at a bar and they say, hey, why are you having a beer? We're all going to die because of climate change. Usually what they bring up uh, and I'm just trying to add some levity. No, this here. is good. Uh, usually, what they bring up is you know the hurricanes and the rec- most recent hurricane, saying like this, they're they're getting crazy hurricanes all the time. They're getting more intense, more frequent, and so on. And is there? Uh, I'm sure there's incredible science going on trying to look at this. Uh, is there? Is it possible? Is there evidence? And is it possible to have evidence that there's a connection? between what would we can call global warming and the increased frequency and intensity of storms. No. And is, okay, no, thank you. Uh, well, <laughs> but, 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 I... you added intensity, you know, it's, it's <laughs> let me just get into this a tiny bit more. I mean, hurricanes, I grew up with them in Rhode Island in the new, in, you know, in, in my youth. And there was a very active period of hurricanes in New England in the 50s and 60s, 70s. And then, in the North Atlantic, generally, was very, very active. A number fifty when I was a kid, and the dynamics of them forming off of Africa and coming here, circling up the coast, was just prime time. Then there was like what Kerry Emanuel, who's the most experienced hurricane climate scientist around at MIT. I, I he was in he's in this story. He's in he's in my nineteen eighty eight article. He. And colleagues have found, and others, that there's what they call the hurricane drought from like the 70s through about 1994 in the Atlantic, specifically the Atlantic Basin. And there's been a lot of questions about that. People thought it was ocean circulation, something about the currents. There are these multi-decadal variabilities in the oceans, right? And then now it looks robustly, I can't find a climate scientist who disagrees that the thing that caused the drought was pollution, smog. And significantly in Europe, and you think, well, how did smog in Europe relate to hurricanes crossing the Atlantic and getting to the United States? It's because of the smog was changing the behavior of the Sahara Desert, which is just south of Europe. And, And the Sahara Desert kills hurricanes sand and dust coming off the Sahara. You can see this every year. When that's active, it stifles these big storms at the point right in their nursery. They all form, there's this area for hurricanes off of West Africa. That's like the nursery zone. And so if you're stifling those hurricanes because of pollution in in Europe before the Clean Air Act's kind of you know cleanups, uh, and then that goes away, none of that has anything to do with global warming. It's another kind of forcing in the climate system, a local one that created a regional dynamic that created a quiet period when all these friends in the bar 
maybe they maybe they were born you know in the nineties or whatever. They grew up in an area of like you know where no hurricanes weren't a big deal. Um, and now we have an end to that drought because we cleaned up the air pollution, the sooty kind of air pollution, sulfury, and anyone who says global warming, global warming, without saying, well, that's in there too, is kind of missing that. And when you look globally, you know, there's still, I think, was it 90 or so hurricanes a year, cyclones, hurricanes, typhoons, globally. That hasn't changed. The number of these tropical storms that reach that ferocity has not changed. It's just a fundamental dynamic of, and, and by the way, on the long time scale, the models still indicate as you warm the planet, and remember the Arctic warms quicker, this is something people probably understand, you're actually evening out the imbalance between the heat at the equator and the cold at the, at the, in the northern part of the hemisphere, and that calms the whole system down. So there could be fewer hurricanes later in the century because of global warming. And for me, you know, that's a lot of information, but if I'm in a bar, I start with, what, what do you care about? You care about safety care about security. You care about having everybody safe, not just you. You know, you get in your car and you can evacuate. What about the old person, you know, or the poor family who can't do that? They, they're not going to leave their house. What are we doing to limit vulnerability now? Uh, that, I, I circle back to that over and over again. I have like a pocket card. I have this graphic card I created uh, about risk. And like, what we really care about is climate risk. Like who's at risk? What's driving the risk? How do you reduce that? It's car. You can almost pull it out in a bar. I should print them. You should do that. It's you like, like risk. Like a, risk is the hazard. <laughs> risk is the hazard. Like you know, the hazard is is a storm times exposure. How many people? How much stuff? Factoring in um, vulnerability or resilience, and climate change is changing the hazard. For some things, not for tornadoes, not for not for everything. Exposure is this expanding bullseye. I, this is another hashtag: expanding bullseye. Get out there and look for that, and you'll see. I, I'm pushing these two geographers who do this for every hazard: wildfire, earthquake, flood, coastal storm, and we're building an expanding bullseye in an area. And nature is throwing darts. Some of the darts are getting bigger because of global warming. Some of the darts we don't know. What do you do? Like, what do you do? Well, you get out of the way, right? You don't want to be on the dartboard. And that, it just simplifies the, the whole formula. It, it, to me, it, it was, it's kind of a transformational uh, potential to, to go into a bar. Maybe I should print these things. <laughs> 100%. And <laughs> I should go drink with you more often. They should be coasters in bars. Because yeah. that was fascinating about smog. And I mean, it's just, it's nice to be reminded about how complicated and fascinating the weather system is. Let me try to answer the the, the questions slightly quicker before your your friends have drunk too much. Uh, but Never uh, enough. <laughs> or not enough. Um, so if you look at the amount of uh, of uh, the number of hurricanes, as uh, as Andy rightly pointed out, um, it doesn't look like it's changing. So we see more because we have now much better detection systems with satellites. But if you look since uh, uh, 1980, when we have good satellite coverage, for instance, last year was the year that had the lowest number of hurricanes in the world. 
And you know, you you're sort of like that's that's odd because it's probably the year where I heard the most about hurricanes. And what that tells you is that just because you hear a lot about hurricanes yeah. doesn't actually mean that there is a lot of hurricanes. You can't just go that way. If if you remember uh, in the 1990s and 2000s. Uh, there was an enormous amount of talk about how violence, uh, how crime was getting worse in the U.S., while all the objective indicators showed that yeah. it was going down. But there's sufficient amount of violence that you can fill every radio and TV show with a new crime. And so if you get more and more TV shows that talk about crime, actually most people end up thinking that there's more crime while the real number is going down. So the reality here is, yes, Climate change will probably affect uh, hurricanes in the sense that they'll be the same number or slightly fewer, as Andy was mentioning, but they will likely be somewhat stronger. The ones this the this seems to be the the best outcome. We're not sure, but this seems to be the, the outcome. And it's important to remember, stronger is worse than fewer is better. So overall, climate will make the world a little bit worse. So that's that's the that's the sort of bottom line, but and that's the real issue here. All the other things, the fact that people are much more vulnerable, yeah. is is just vastly outweigh this. Which is why, if you look at the impact of hurricanes and impact of pretty much everything, it is typically going down. If you look, for instance, in percent of GDP, you have to look at percent of GDP because if you have twice as many houses, obviously, you know, the same kind of impact will have twice the the impact or if they're twice as worth twice as much. If you do that in percent of GDP, and even the UN says that's how you should measure it, it's going down. Why is that? It's because we're becoming more resilient. You know, just simply, we, you know, if you look at what happens with when hurricanes come in, we have much better prediction in the long run. That means you now know, you know, two or three days out that there's a big hurricane that's likely to come here. What does that mean? All the things that can be moved. So, you know, typically all buses, all yeah. trucks, everything that's not bolted down will leave this area. And so you'll get less damage from that. You will have more people knowing, oh, this is going to be a big one. They move to their relatives somewhere else. So you'll have fewer people being vulnerable. There's a if lot people of, are responsive and aware. Yeah, yeah there's, the there's a lot of way you can do this. Really so the, the outcome, and this is important for the whole conversation, the outcome is that we're actually becoming less vulnerable and that damages are becoming smaller, not bigger. But had there not been global warming, it would probably have gone down even faster so we would have become even better off quicker had there been no global warming. But this is a crucial difference. And this is what I find really hard to communicate. Climate change is not this, oh my God, everything is going off the, off the, off the charts and we're all going to be doomed kind of thing. Climate change is a, a thing that means we're going to get better slightly slower. And that's a very, very different kind of uh, attitude. It, it's yeah. one of the many problems rather than this is the end of all, all of us. And, and by the way, if you look at what's happening in the world, um, the data also show that in rich places and poor places, we still are moving into zones of hazard faster than climate is changing. Hmm. Beth Tellman, who was at Columbia and she moved to Arizona, she and colleagues at this outfit called Cloud to Street did an amazing study showing this is a year or so ago I wrote about showing, again, we're moving into zones of hazard, which it applies to me, um, just what Bjorn was saying, that we wouldn't be, people wouldn't be doing that if they thought that was going to lead to devastation. And this is today. We're, we're doing this now. And it's flood, flood zones, wildfire zones, 
So, so that means there's these things to do. You, there's so much plasticity in the human behavior and, and how we build and where we build. You can make a I mean, big, big change in the outcomes. I mean, one, one of the things to remember is, you know, people move to where hurricanes hit because when they're not there, it's a really beautiful place to be. Yeah, yeah. Right? So so in, in, in many ways, we, we make the trade-offs and say, Look, I'm I'm happy to live, you know, have an ocean view, and then maybe a hurricane's going to hit. And of course, it becomes a lot easier than when the federal government is actually subsidizing your risk by saying right. we'll insure you really cheaply. Uh, and that's one of the things that we should stop doing. You know, we should actually tell people, look, if you want to live where hurricanes hit, maybe you should be more careful. Yeah. By the way, what, what I was saying about um, past storms, the paleo tempestology, past fires, it's the same thing. We've we've suppressed fire. In the United States for a hundred years, through much of the West, through uh, wanting to save the forests, you know the whole Smokey the Bear thing. Don't stop. When these were landscapes that were that evolved to burn, and what happened in the last hundred years? A lot of people love the West. We love we love these environments. We love to live with the trees. The Boulder County area, the explosive development in zones of implicit hazard, leads to big bad outcomes when conditions align and climate change is worsening some of those conditions. And sometimes it's really counterintuitive. A wet season builds more grass. A dry season comes along, parches the grass. Then comes a human ignition. It's almost always human ignitions. And then you have this disaster where a thousand homes burn in Boulder County. And it's like, there's so many elements there that can be worked on that give me confidence that we can change these outcomes. You can, natural, disasters are not natural. Disasters are, are designed, really, as some people say. Can I take a quick aside and ask about terminology of climate change and global warming? Because yeah. we you, use it interchangeably. It is an aside, but it's one that's worthy of taking. Do those carry different meanings? And has that meaning changed over the years uh, between those two terms? Or are they really equivalent? Well, some people say there was this industry or propagandistic shift from, uh, let's see, what was it? Which came first? Oh, no, they're, they're going to climate change now. Like, it's a new thing, which is it's ridiculous. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 1988 wasn't the Intergovernmental Panel on Global Warming. Hmm. It was on climate change. They're, so these, these terms have been there. They've been sort of evolving. Well, when I wrote this cover story, it was the greenhouse effect. So green yeah. and that's fallen out of favor. Greenhouse effect is not often talked about. Well, it's really that's that's the physical effect that's holding in the heat. Well, but see, the, it's not a good. There's thing. terms that mean stuff, and there's terms that are actually used in public discourse yep. to designate what your a whole umbrella of opinions you have. And I, I guess as somebody me who doesn't pay attention uh, to this carefully, you have to use terms carefully. Sure. Because people will, you know, a, a noob that rolls into the topic will often use terms to mean exactly what they mean, like literally. But they actually have political implications, all that kind of stuff. And so I, I guess I'm asking, is there like, uh, is is there, a, are you signaling something by using global warming versus climate change? Or people well, the, have calmed down in, in terms of the use of these? No, things? no, but the Guardian newspapers made it yeah. worse. Now they have a, yeah. their style book. You know, every newspaper yeah. has a. They they prescribe. They don't want their reporters to use any of those terms anymore. They call it climate crisis, climate emergency. Oh no! Or oh yeah! Global heating. It's literally in their rule book. Yeah. Global heating. That sounds more intense. Global heating. That, and that wrote, was the point. 
Well, I wrote about the global heating thing more than a decade ago. That that's been around, but you know, so they're they're doing the um, what was the movie where the the comedy, the rock and roll comedy, where he sets the, his his. To his, 11, yeah, yeah. His to amplifier 11. goes oh. to 11. You, you know, the idea that you turn up the rhetorical volume and that's going to change people is, is I mean, ridiculous. I, so so for me, I mean, uh, I use global warming and, and climate change uh, uh, interchangeably, and I think it's it's fair. There's, you know, there's some technical ways that you can differentiate them. Uh, but the reality is that global warming is probably a better way to describe a lot of it because this is really what is the main driver of what we worry about. Uh, climate change seems a little diffuse, but you know it's, it's convenient to when you talk yeah. about climate all the time that you can call both of them. But I think the climate crisis and the climate catastrophe is really sort of this is the amping up uh, of, of a catastrophe. And again, as we've talked about before, uh, if it really were true, we should tell people. Uh, but if it's not true, and I think there's a lot of reasons why this is not a, you know, a climate catastrophe, this is a problem, uh, we're actually doing everyone a disservice because we end up making people so worried that they say, we got to fix this in 12 years or whatever the number is. And also that it makes it almost impossible to have a conversation of, you know, well, you know, maybe we should be focusing on, on vulnerability first. And it, it, a lot of people, and I think a lot of well-meaning uh, and well-intentioned people feel that it's almost sacrilegious to do, you know, to say oh, it's sure. a, it's about uh, vulnerability because you're taking away you, the guilt of climate change. You're taking away our focus on 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 dealing with climate change. Whereas yeah. I think we would say no, and, it's about stuff yeah. that actually works, and you know, doing that first. Well, and and by making it about carbon dioxide, you're implicitly implicitly making it about fossil fuels. Which implicitly gives you another great narrative: good guy, bad guy. It, it, it's these big companies. Where's the source of alarmism? So, is it the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? Like, what? There's a chain here. Is there somebody to blame along the chain, or is this some kind of weird complex system where everybody mm -hmm. encourages each other? Can you point to one place? Is it the media? Is it the scientists? I think the UN climate panel is fundamentally a really good uh, 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 climate research group. They're, you can have some quibbles with the way that they sort of summarize it in politically coordinated documents and stuff. But you know, fundamentally, I think they do a good job of, uh, of, of putting together all the research. This also means it's incredibly boring to read, which is why virtually nobody does it. I, I'm, I'm sure you have, but I'm pretty sure a lot of climate journalists have never sort of looked past the uh, at least the uh, the summary for policymakers. So, they, you, so you they, on the climate panel, they do like a, uh, they do predictions as well. No, well, they they pull together all the stuff that people have published in the period literature, uh, and then try to summarize it and basically tell you so what's up and down with climate change. They do that in four four large volumes every four to five to six seven years or something. Uh, and, um, and yes, it's, it's, you know, I think it's the gold plated version of what we know. Uh, there tends to be a lot of, um, uh, well, this is what they say. Actually, they say so many different places with so many different people that it's not quite clear exactly what they're saying often. You know, you can sort of find contradictions between one volume with one set of authors and another, but yeah, look, I, I, I think this is fundamentally the right way that we know about climate mm -hmm. but then it gets translated into how do you how do you know about this when most people don't read these 4000 pages you know you read a news story in a newspaper 
And that news story will be very, very heavily slanted towards, you know, if, if you say, so sea levels could rise somewhere between one and three foot, what do you hear? Yeah, you obviously hear the three foot. Three foot is just, you know, more fun, more scary, more interesting than one foot. Uh, and and it's that way with all of these, you know, so what, what's the prediction for, for temperature rises? It's uh, somewhere from not very scary to pretty damn scary. Uh, and again, you hear the pretty damn scary all the time. Yeah. Uh, and and then there's, there's obviously always researchers who are saying, well, but actually it could be a little more scary than that. And then there are likewise researchers who say, well, you know, it's probably not going to be as scary as that. And most of the journalists will, you know, interview. So you, the, do you really put the blame fundamentally on the on the journalists? I is put there, it on on the media setup. It, look, media is simply trying to get clicks or sell newspapers. And if if you were just going to say this is not a big issue, it just doesn't sell anything. But I think you're probably much better able to address yeah. this. Well, no, I folks can Google for my name Revkin and the words front page thought. In the newsroom, every afternoon, now we have a 24-7 news cycle, so it's different. But back in the day, the New York Times, when it was a flourishing print institution, every afternoon there was a front page meeting. And the big poobah editors would go in there, and the desk editors come in with their pitches for the day. And my friend, Corey Dean, who was the science editor for a chunk of my time, uh, you know, I, I remember having a conversation with her about some new study of, I think it was Greenland, the ice sheet, and... Uh, I laid it out for her, and she said, where's the front page thought in that? So we're all set up to look for the that. The scary bit. No. And the news environment has gotten so much worse than then, 10 or 20 years ago. At least you had filters and limited number of outlets, and there was some sense you could track with good or bad. There's lots of problems with that system, too. But now you have an information buffet so if you're if you want to be alarmed or you want to be can stay in the tribe of those who think this is utter bull, you can find your flow, and that that has led. But getting back to this specific question, I, the 2018 IPCC report, which was a special report commissioned to learn about the difference between 1.5 degrees of warming and two, which sounds so weird and technocratic and complicated, that's the one that generated the whole meme about eight years left yeah, 12 years till doomsday then, yeah, and that's the one the meme? this was the uh the idea that there's a point we're gonna if we don't cut emissions in half by whatever it was 2050 yeah. we're doomed that emerged from that specific report and it wasn't something that was in the report it was in the spin around the report and that's what captivated greta appropriately as a young person going oh, you know and with her unique vantage point and stuff and that report, I still need to dig in and write something deeper about what happened with that particular dynamics. Created this recent burst of we're doomed rhetoric that, that I think you're focusing on. And it's all in the external interpretations, which journalism laps up because we're looking for the front page thought. But it's not just the journalists, it's the whole system, uh, NGOs, environmental groups. If you're, if in developing country, uh, well-meaning leaders in developing countries, because of the structure of this treaty that goes back to 1992, that's the Paris Agreement is part of, they are now um, really looking for a way to portray this as a CO2 problem, not a vulnerability 
Well, there's a vulnerability aspect, but like in Pakistan, their their um, climate minister, which they didn't even have a climate minister five years ago, is blaming everything that happened in Pakistan on carbon dioxide warming the climate, creating this. When a lot of what was going on was also on the ground, and you can blame colonialism, Pakistan's history, all kinds of things. But but under the treaty, you want it to be about CO two, because that puts the onus on rich countries. You're not paying us. Where's our money? And they're right, you know, in the context of what everyone agreed to, there was supposed to be a hundred billion dollars a year from rich countries to poor countries starting in 2020. It didn't happen. It's like basically some money is flowing, but it's not really made meaningful. up money. <laughs> yeah, and so so that whole dynamic, they latch on to the climate science, and they they you know so they're there, and they're very handy, quotable people, and you have a justice angle. You have bad guys and good guys which fits all of these narrative threads that come together into this information storm we're still living with. And and then, of course, it's not Pakistan's fault either, right? I mean, it also actually, almost all leaders now say it's because of climate, because then right. it's not, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. Uh, in Germany, for instance, uh, when we had that flood last year, it's it's not impossible that, that climate had a part in in that. But it's very, very clear that the main reason why so many people died in Germany and Belgium was because the alarm systems didn't work. And this was plainly right. yeah. the local leaders in Germany. Now, if I'm stuck here and basically have caused the you know, the death of 200 people, would I rather say, yeah, that's on me, or would I say, climate? And, you know, all so the time. It's just such an easy scapegoat. I don't want to place it all on the journalists, I think, because there's a lot of, if I were to think about, what did you call it, front page thought, there's a lot of really... Um, narratives that uh, result in the destruction of the human species. So nuclear war, pandemics, all that kind of stuff. It seems like climate is a sticky one. So the fact that it's sticky means there's other interests at play like you guys are talking about yeah. in terms of politics, all that kind of stuff. So it's not just the journalists. I feel like journalists will try anything for the front page, but yeah. it, won't, it won't stick unless there's bigger interests at play for which it, these narratives are useful. So journalists will just throw stuff out there and see if it gets clicks. And sure. um, it it's it's like a first spark maybe. Uh, it's, it's maybe a tiny catalyst of the initial steps, but it has to be picked up by the politicians, by interest groups and all that kind of stuff. Let me ask you, Bjorn, about the um, first part of the subtitle. How climate change panic costs us trillions. How does climate change panic cost us trillions? So we're basically deciding to make policies that'll have fairly little impact, even in 50 or 100 years, that literally cost trillions of dollars. So you know, give you uh, two examples. So uh, the European Union is trying to go to uh, net zero. Uh, so our attempt to go halfway there by 2030 uh, will cost about a trillion dollars a year. Uh, and yet the net impact will be almost unmeasurable by the end of the century. Why is that? That's because the EU and the rich countries is a fairly small part of the emissions that are going to come out in the 21st century. Now, we used to be a big part of it. That's mainly because nobody else, you know, it was just the US and, and Europe and a few others that put out CO2 in the, in the 20th century. So we used to be big, but in the 21st century, we'll be a small bit player. And so we're basically spending a lot of money and remember, a trillion dollars is a lot of money that could have been spent on a lot of things that could have made you know, humanity better on something that will only make us tiny bit better. Now, 
it will do some good, but you know, the reasonable estimates is if you do a cost benefit analysis, and again, you know, technically it's, it's really, really complicated, but the basic idea is very, very simple. You just simply say, what are all the costs on one side? And what are all the benefits? So the costs are mainly that we have to live with more expensive energy. You have to forego some opportunities. You have to have you know more complicated uh, services, that kind of thing. The benefit is that you cut carbon emissions, and that eventually means that you'll have less climate damage. You'll have lower temperature rises and so on. If you try to weigh up all of those, it's reasonable to assume that the EU policies will deliver for every dollar you spend it'll deliver less than a dollar, probably about 30 cents back on the dollar, which is a really bad way to spend dollars because there's lots of lots of other things out in the world where you could do, you know, multiple, you know, so for instance, if you think about tuberculosis or uh, education of, of, of small kids or nutrition for small kids and that, those kinds of things, every dollar you spend will do like 30 to $100 worth of good. So there are much, much better places where you could spend this money. Likewise, uh, the U.S. is thinking of going net zero by 20. 50. It's not actually going to happen, but it's sort of a, a thing that everybody talks about. Biden is talking a lot about it. Uh, if you look at the models that indicate how, how, how much will that cost, it's not implausible that this will cost somewhere between two and four trillion dollars per year by mid-century. And remember, if the U.S. went carbon neutral today, by the end of the century, that would reduce temperatures by about 0.3 degree Fahrenheit. So, you would just be able to measure it. It probably wouldn't in real life, but you know, it, you'd just be able to measure it. Again, this is not saying that there's not some good coming out of it, but you're basically spending an enormous amount of money on fairly small benefits. So that's that's my main point. Yeah, this reminds me of what we were saying earlier about um, the things that models don't integrate and the things that cost-benefit leave out because you really can't go there. One of the issues facing the world right now is the reality that we're reminded of that energy availability is a geopolitical destabilizer. If you have uneven access to energy and you have Vladimir Putin coming into office or something else happening that disrupts that system, you're, you're vastly increasing poverty. You, you, this is playing out across the world. Fertilizer prices, fertilizer comes from gas, um, natural gas. Um, if you can envision a world later in the century where we're no longer beholden on this material in the ground, at least fossil fuels, you know, cobalt and lithium for batteries. That's pretty cool, you know, because you're taking away geop geopolitical instability and you don't, but that's not factored in, no. right? That's like way outside of what you'd factor in. Yes. But it does feel like to me, you know, if I was going to make the case for, you can choose your trillions, whatever that investing big isn't for these marginal things. It's for, looking at the big picture, a world of abundant energy that doesn't come from a, from a black rock or a gooey liquid that when you burn it creates... But pollution. isn't that what the proposals are, is investing in different kinds of energy, renewable energy? So what... But I don't think most people aren't making that case. What's in the in the trillion and the T costs? What's incorporated? What are the big costs there? So the big cost is that you have slightly lower productivity gains. So basically, again, you know, and this is sort of the opposite of what we just talked about by climate change, we're, we're going to get richer and richer in the world. This is all models, also the UN. This is really the only way that you can get big climate changes because everybody gets a lot richer. So also the developing world gets a lot richer. So we're likely to get richer. But one of the things that drive 
our wealth production is the fact that we have ample and cheap and available energy. If you make that slightly harder, which is what you do with climate legislation, because you're basically telling people you have to use a source of energy that you'd rather not have used, had because if people wanted to do it, we'd already have solved the problem. So you basically tell them you've got to use this wind turbine instead of this uh, natural gas plant or, you know, that kind of thing. It makes it's it's not that you suddenly become poor or anything. It simply makes production slightly harder. What do you do when when the wind is not blowing kind of thing? And of course we have lots of ways to somewhat mitigate that, but it's a little more costly, a little more complicated, a little less convenient. And that means you grow a little less. That's the main problem with with these policies that it simply makes you somewhat less well off. So energy becomes more inefficient. Yes. So let me challenge you here uh try to steal man some critics so you have critics <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh I, i would love you to take it seriously and sort of consider this criticism and try to steal man their their case uh there's a bunch uh i, I could mention uh this this list of criticisms from bob ward in london school of mm -hmm. economics i don't know if you're familiar with him but just on this point in terms of one of the big costs being on energy, he criticizes your recent book in saying you consider the 143 billion in annual support for renewable energy, but ignore the 300 billion in fossil fuel subsidies. So a lot of the criticism has to do with, well, you're cherry picking the models, which the models are always cherry picking anyway. So, um, but, you know, you want to take those seriously. So uh, he claims that you ignore, you're not hmm. uh, fully modeling the costs, the, the trade-off here, how expensive is the renewable energy and how expensive is the fo fossil fuel. Can you steal Manus' case? Sure. So uh, two things. Uh, uh, the first, the, the quote, it's, it's absolutely true that the world spends a large uh, a chunk of money on fossil fuels, and that's just stupid, and we should stop doing it. We should also recognize that this is not rich countries. This is not the countries where we're talking about climate change. This is poor countries. This is Saudi Arabia. Uh, no, that's actually not a terribly poor country. Uh, it's China. It's Indonesia. It's uh, uh, Russia. Uh, it's places where you're basically paying off your population, just like that you subsidize bread. You make sure that they don't rebel by making cheap uh, uh, fuels available. That's dumb. But it's not like they, you know, they don't know what they're doing. They're mostly doing this for things that have nothing to do with climate. So I totally agree we should get rid of it. It's hard to do. Indonesia's actually somewhat uh, managed to, uh, to get rid of it. Because remember, if you spend a lot of money on fossil fuel subsidies, you're basically subsidizing the rich. Because, you know, poor people don't have a car. It's the rich people who can now buy, you know, a very cheap gasoline. That's, you know, that's unjust as well. Uh, so it's dumb in so many different ways. I would never argue that you shouldn't do it. I've, I've plenty of times said we should stop that. But we should also recognize these are mostly regimes that are not going to be taken over either by my argument or Bob Ward's or <laughs> anyone else's. They're doing this for totally different reasons. Now, on the model side, there is virtually no model that don't show, uh, economic model that don't show this has a cost. And that's the fundamental point is that 
the you know uh, this is sort of a basic point from from economics the system is already working most effectively because if it wasn't you know you could actually make money changing over so if you want to have a change outside of what the system is already doing it's because you're saying you have to do something that you'd rather not want to do namely use an energy source that is less convenient or less uh, cost effective and so on and that will incur a cost now there's huge discussion about just exactly how much cost is that so there's definitely a cost is the cost going to be one or five trillion that's absolutely a discussion about where do you take your models from i try to do and and again this is not possible everywhere i try to actually take the average of all of the economic models so there's a, a there's a group called the stanford energy modeling forum which tries to pull together all these different groups that do the modeling so some models a lot of this cost actually comes down to uh, 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 the fact that we don't quite know how much more fossil fuels you're going to need in the future. And so if you're not going to, if your projections are, you're not going to use that much, the cost of reducing it is going to be very small. If you think you're going to use a ton of extra f fossil fuels and you have to reduce that, the cost is going to be bigger. So I think that's just one of the variables that's, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's right. many, many, many more. I think the, the point here is to say that if you take the average of all the best model is sort of aggregated, for instance, at the Stanford Energy Modeling Forum, you're pretty secure ground. And and uh, so so again, I, I would argue that uh, Bob Ward, yes, I've had a lot of run-ins with Bob Ward, uh, uh, and, and he has a very different uh, set of views on, on things. Uh, but but I, I just don't think he's right in saying that I'm cherry-picking. Well, yes, and I mean, he also has similar criticism about the estimate of the EU cost of climate action uh, based on the NOP 2013 model. But ultimately, these criticisms have to do is like, what are the sources for the different models? And, and just very briefly, I mean, I'm, I'm laying it out very transparently where I get these models, yes. uh, where I get these estimates from in, in the book. I've really tried to document this. And yes, I mean, look, there's nobody who sort of has all the information and gets everything right in all of these areas. Uh, I, I, I think most of uh, uh, Ward's uh, argument is, is not a, uh, a good faith effort to uh to sort of uh improve on on these estimates he's he's right in saying some of these estimates we only have a few estimates and you know yeah i'd like to have more of them i one thing i should mention is that there is very little interest in general and there's very little funding in finding out how much do our climate policies cost because that's you know that's just inconvenient to everyone yeah and and the whole game you know who wants to know that that you know for instance uh, uh, uh would would you want to fund uh something that says that the inflation reduction act is not going to be very effective of course you don't want to do that right so so it's it, again it's a little bit the you know flock of birds will look some at something else and and what i think is that given that we're paying for it at the end this is you know this is public money we're deciding we're going to spend money here rather than there let's at least you know, look at what are the best estimates out there. I would love to be have more estimates. Uh, more estimates is always better. And I, just a quick comment on the good faith part. Me as a consumer looking for truth, it's hard to find who's good faith and not. So it's not only are you looking for a sort of accurate information, you're also trying to infer about the communicator of that information. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's very difficult. It's... it's uh, and you know, you put me on the on the podcast. Of course, I'm going to say I'm a trustworthy <laughs> guy. Well, but, but yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, but I, and you, we you, believe we're yeah. trustworthy too. But um, 
you know, I've been reading for various reasons, but mostly because I've been traveling to Ukraine and thinking and just about the people's um, suffering through war. I've been reading a lot about World War II and, and Stalin and Hitler. And, you know, from the perspective of Hitler, uh, he really believed he's doing good for the world. And he was communicating from his perspective in good faith. Um, he started to believe, I think, early on his own propaganda. So you, you're, even your understanding and perception of the world completely shifted. So it's, it's very, very, very difficult mm. to understand who to trust. Um, and uh, just because it's a consensus in a particular community doesn't necessarily mean it's a source of trust. So it's a, I, I mean, mm. basically, I don't know how to operate in this world except to have a humility and constantly question your assumptions. and uh, But not so much that you're completely out in the ocean not knowing yeah. what is true and not. So it's this weird, weird world because I, I ultimately, bigger than climate, my hope is to have institutions that can be trusted. And that's been very much under attack um, in as, as part of the climate debate, as, as part of the... COVID debate as part of all of these discussions. And science to me is one of the sources of truth. And the fact that that's under question now is uh, something that hurts me uh, on many levels uh, deeply. You said something earlier that I took a note down, down here and I can't find it about cooperation. It was like collaborative cooperation or something like that. Sure. What, to me, there was a point like in 2013, after just dealing with all everything you've been grappling with, what if you don't if you know you don't know how this is going to work out what do you work on and i one morning i made a list of words that kind of summarized basically system properties that give you confidence in a system trust or and their transparency is one just as you were saying earlier yeah. um uh, connectivity is another you know so that everyone's connected so on the subsidy issue, for example, there are young entrepreneurs in Nairobi who are selling ingeniously using Nairobi's digital currency, uh, propane, the fuel that's in our backyard barbecue grills, which comes out of gas wells, but it's a separate fuel, uh, in little increments that poor people can use instead of charcoal. And LPG subsidies are, are helping them get people off of charcoal, which is a horrific Terrible. trade from the source through the warlords in Somalia and elsewhere who are getting the money to the pollution in houses. So so having be sure being sure when we're having these big debates about who the World Bank is going to give loans to and, and drawing a simple line, no more fossil fuel subsidies hurts a really good, valuable small scale, but scalable way to have people not die from cooking smoke in their houses and, and take down forests. So, so, but that only is considered if they're in the conversation. So connectivity, full connectivity, digital access. So, so, so those entrepreneurs are, are in the mix of people. When they're thinking about subsidies, you're not just thinking about Big Bad Exxon, you're thinking about this little company in Nairobi, Pago, Pago LPG, I think is the name. In India, the same thing. So, so, so you can list those properties of systems. And the IPCC wasn't originally transparent when I started writing about it in 1988, 1990. 
And now it's way more transparent. They have more public review. So it's even better than it was. It's like a really good example of a science process of assessing the science, providing periodic output to the world, and iteratively improving the model going forward because of critique, because of, because of um, you know scrutiny, um, and finding better ways for that to interface with people so they have information they can use from that big thing. And the media, you know, are not doing a good job um, because of this front page thoughtism. Um, but we can all. You know, I work partially in academia, Columbia, on an initi initiative partially in communication innovation. Like, how can we have an open landscape of access to information that matters? How can you, what can you do to foster better conversations so that words like collapse aren't just thrown around like emblems? And, and so system properties give you confidence, I think. Uh, and then you, then you don't have to like be flailing around for Bjorn or Tom, Tom Friedman or um, uh, Catherine Hayhoe. You can always right now find your 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 character to follow. But I think what's would be better is if you actually develop some skills to just have a basic ability to know how to cut to the chase. Can I can I just follow up on that? Because one of the things that I try to do and, and so my day job is actually something else. I work with a think thing called the Copenhagen Consensus, uh, where we work with uh, more than three hundred of the world's top economists and we work with seven Nobel laureates in economics. And and the the point there is really to talk about where can you spend a dollar and do the most good for the world. That's that's basically the the thing that we try to do, and and as as you rightly point out, look, there are lots of different estimates of what can you do, for instance, on climate, what can you do on tuberculosis, what can you do for uh, vulnerability, in all kinds of different different ways, and and if these were all sort of well, you can spend a dollar here and do two point three six, but you can spend a dollar here and do two point three four over here. I would worry a lot, but that's not how the world works because we're terribly inefficient. So there are literally lots and lots of amazing things you can do out there. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit. And there's a lot of not terribly great things that you can do. And unfortunately, one of the things that I try to sort of battle is that you know, we get a lot of things right. That's why you know the world is a lot better than what it used to be. Uh, but the things that are sort of left, left over are often you know, the boring things that happen to be incredibly effective and the exciting things that are often not that terribly effective. Uh, and, and so I think one way to look at this is basically to have people do cost benefit across a wide range of areas. And we try to get a lot of different economists to do this and they come up with different numbers and different models and different results. But if you sort of consistently get that some things give you, you know, in tens or maybe even hundreds of dollars back per dollar, Remember, this is not actually you getting rich. It's the world getting rich. It's that the world gets better worth $100 for, for every dollar you spend. And over here, you can spend a dollar and do somewhere between 30 cents and maybe a couple of dollars. You should probably be focused on the other opportunity first. And that's really the point that I try to make with climate. There are some smart things we can do, and I hope we get to talk about them uh, in, in climate. But there's also a lot of sort of the standard approaches to fixing climate turns out to be very likely below $1 back on the dollar and certainly not terribly high. You know, even if you're very optimistic, it'll be like two or three. Whereas many other things are just fantastically better investment. Like the thing I've been advocating, uh, a modest proposal to eat the children of the poor in England. Was that the, <laughs> in uh, Jonathan Swift, modest proposal from yeah. a few centuries ago? Um, so it's not just 
cause benefit, it's also in the context of what is moral and not and all that. Well, the full the full complexity. But that you just hit on something really important. You know, having been on this beat for so long, and again on the disaster beat as well, earthquakes. I can't tell you how many disaster science experts keep telling me, like everyone says, preparedness, invest for preparedness. A strict cost-benefit analysis will always tell you a dollar invested in resilience before a community gets hit by whatever is worth 10. You'll always have to spend 10 after. And so it's fine to do the cost-benefit stuff, but it's just the baseline. Then you have to look at the social science, which shows, or history, which shows you how few times we do it. It's like, we just don't do it. Therefore, you can bang that drum. I, your work is valuable, but it's really constrained because show me in the world where that does happen and then how you turn that success, which is basically something not happening, hmm. into so, a story. So just, just very briefly, you know, we, we try to, so we, we do this for a lot of countries. So we yeah. did it for uh, Haiti, for instance. Uh, uh, funded by the Canadian Development uh, Ministry because they're basically saying we spent a billion dollars in Haiti since the earthquake and we really can't tell the difference. <laughs> so they wanted to find, they, I mean, they actually say that, right? And so they said, we want to find out what are the really smart things you can do in Haiti. And so we, we uh, together with lots of you know uh, uh, people in Haiti and all the you know the business community and the political community and the religious community and labor community and everybody else, what are the smart things to do? And then we had economists evaluate it, and there are a yeah. lot of these things that everybody wanted that were not all that smart. There's actually a lot of smart things, and yes, the politicians didn't pick most of them. So our our sense is, we try to give people uh, you know you're thinking about these seventy things. You should actually just think about these 20 things. Right. And then we consider ourselves incredibly lucky if they actually do one of them. So you wrote the book, How to Spend $75 billion to Make the World a Better Place. So um, can we just list some of the things? Uh, if, I, if, if you got $75 billion, what, how, how do you spend them? All right. So there's some incredibly good and very, very well-documented things that you could spend money on. So we have two big infectious diseases that almost nobody think about uh, because we only think about you know, COVID. Uh, but tuberculosis used to be the world's biggest infectious disease killer. Uh, it ki still kills about one and a half million uh, people every year. Uh, the reason why we don't you know, really worry about it is because we fixed it a hundred years ago. We know how to fix it. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's just basically getting medication to people. It's also about getting them to take it while when they're sort of been cured because you need to take it for four to six months and that's actually hard to do. So you also need to incentivize that in some kind of way. It turns out it's incredibly cheap to basically save almost all of the 1.5 million people. These are people that die in the prime of their lives. They're typically parents. So, you know, it also have a lot of knock-on effects. And basically we find for a couple billion dollars, you could save the vast number of these. Not all of them, but you could save the vast number of them. It would also improve you know, outcomes in all kinds of other ways. Likewise with malaria, uh, another, it has some somewhat better uh, PR. It's, it's funny to think of malaria as PR and tuberculosis not, and they need to improve their PR department. Well, but, but, yeah. <laughs> Those mosquitoes are the good PR. But by far the biggest infectious disease 
that got good, good PR, if you will, yes. was HIV, right? Yes. Because, mm -hmm. and, that, and, and I'm not trying to compare and say, oh, it's worse or better to have HIV than uh, to, uh, tuberculosis or anything, but I'm simply saying we are underfunding because it doesn't really get the public af uh, 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 attention. We just, yeah, you know, we don't But really spending care. money on that has, uh, in terms of benefit, a much bigger impact. So than every other. dollar you spend on TB will probably do about $43 worth of good. So it'll do an amazing amount of good, basically because it'll save lives, it'll make sure parents stay with their kids and be more productive in their communities, and it'll you know, have a lot of knock-on effects. And it's incredibly cheap to do. Same thing with malaria. malaria, it's mostly mosquito nets that we need to get out. And you're saying, just to contrast with climate change, a dollar you spend on, no, not climate change, but decreasing emissions yeah. does, not have, does not come close to the $43 benefit? Yeah. No, nobody, nobody would ever argue that. So very, very um, enthusiastic climate uh, advocates would probably say it'll do two or three dollars worth of good for every dollar. So, you know, it's still worthwhile to do. That's what they would say. I would argue, and I think a lot of the evidence seems to side that way, that a lot of the things that we're doing deliver actually less than a dollar back. Uh, but, but it's certainly not in nearly the same uh, kind of place. But there's many, many other things. And, uh, you know, just if, if you'll allow me to... Yes, <laughs> please, I love this. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there are lots of other things, for instance, uh, e-procurement. So, uh, you know, it's, it's incredibly boring. So most developing countries, well, actually most governments spend most of their money on procurement is typically incredibly corrupt. Uh, so we did this project for Bangladesh, uh, where Can we you explain procurement. Yes. So that's governments buying stuff. Uh, so a large part of the government revenue is spent on buying any, anything from, you know, post-it notes to roads. And obviously, you know, roads are much, much more expensive. It's, it's mostly infrastructure uh, stuff. Hugely corrupt. Uh, for instance, in Bangladesh, um, it would already have been decided among the ruling elite in that local area who's going to get this. Uh, so they'll have this bidding competition where you have to hand in an envelope, a sealed envelope with your bid on it. But you put a goon outside the office. So you literally physically can't get in with your uh, with your bid. Now, what we found, and this is, you know, I'm not, I'm not claiming any sort of ownership to this. A lot of smart people have done this way before. We're just simply proving that it's a good idea. Um, it turns out that if you put this on eBay, essentially, so if you do an e-procurement system where bidders can come in, suddenly it becomes harder to put up the goon. You can still do it, but it's harder to do it. It also means you get bids from all over Bangladesh. Uh, and, and in general, uh, you'll get bids from all over. Actually, it turns out you get better quality. But most important is you get it much cheaper. So basically, you can simply save money. So we, we did a, a scaled experiment in Bang Bangladesh where we had about 4% go to, uh, to be uh, e-procurement. And you could compare what it would have cost and then what it did cost. And the average reduction was, as I remember, at 7%. And the finance minister loved it, you know, because mm. that basically gives him a lot more money or, you know, you can buy more stuff at the same cost. No, it is corruption. So it's, it's basically you get rid of some corruption. There'll still be corruption, but less corruption. Right. Ukraine has actually been big on this. They, I, yeah, I've yeah. talked to him. I talked to the digital transformation minister. It's kind of incredible. I mean, this is before the war, but still working. Uh, it's like the entirety of the government is in an app. Mm -hmm. And that one of the big effects, 
is the reduction of corruption. And not like from a, this was a politician say, to say, we've reduced, we've taken these actions to reduce corruption. No, literally it's just much more difficult to be corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> the and incentives so, so, aren't quite there and the, the, there's friction for corruption. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So basically uh, you can spend a little bit of money and you can make a huge benefit. There's still about 70 countries that haven't gone e-procurement. So obviously they should do that. Food for small kids, another thing. So, you know, uh, basically, you know, it's morally wrong that people are st uh, starving. Uh, but it also turns out that it's a really, really dumb thing not to get kids good food. Because if you get them good food, their brains develop more so that when they get into school, they learn more. And so when they come out in adult lives, they're much more productive. So we can actually make every kid in, especially in developing countries, much more productive by making sure they get good food. So getting good food is not cost-free. So it probably costs about a hundred dollars, uh, both in, in you, you need some, uh, uh, directed advertisement. You need to make sure that you actually get some of the food out there that you help the families. And you also make sure you don't just give it to everyone because then it becomes a lot more expensive. If you do that right, it costs about a hundred dollars per kid. But per, per kid year, yes. or uh, for, for two years. So it's for their first two years of life. Um, and if you do that, you then get a benefit in that they become smarter and go longer to school and they actually learn more and become more produ productive of $4,500. Remember, this is far out into the future. So the, this is discounted. The benefit is actually much higher. And this is one of the things that we also have a conversation about in, in climate change because all, mm -hmm. and when you talk about climate change, cost and benefits, all the costs are now and all the benefits are in the future, but it's just like that in education. You know, all the costs are now, all the benefits are far into the future. And if you try to do that right, and that's a whole other conversation <laughs> that we could have, uh, then it turns out that for every dollar spent, you do $45 worth of good. Again, remember about a, a third of all kids that go to school right now just don't learn pretty much anything. And if we could make them more productive in the school system, we have another proposal on how to do that in the in the school system. But you know, by just simply making sure that they're that they're smarter when they get into school, uh, we've been focusing so much on making the education system better, which is really hard. But it's actually really easy to make the kids smarter. Then when you say the education system is not working well, that's we're talking about not the American education system, we're talking about globally. We're, yes, we're talking about globally. You know, so uh, about a third of the teachers in developing countries have a hard time passing the tests of the things they have to teach their students, right? And, and you know, all these students have lots of other issues. You know, there's, they, they need to do farm work. They, they need, uh, you know, uh, they, they're constantly considering, should I just go out and start working instead? Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's constant disruption. There's a lot of teachers that don't show up in India. You know, you have, uh, you had this absurd situation where all the teachers are basically paid and uh, hired for eternity for the rest of their lives. And so not surprisingly, a lot of them decide not to show up. So now they've hired assistant teachers that basically have taken over. So, so they're paying, you know, for, I think it's 7 million teachers that I'm not saying they're not all, all not working, but a lot of them are not working as much as they should. And we've now hired another 7 million teachers that ev will eventually, you know, stop working as well. They're, they're working much better right now because they're, you know, they're, they're not on, on permanent contracts, but eventually they'll get on permanent contracts and then you have the same problem again. There's lots of these issues. And, you know, it's just simply about saying we can't fix all problems, 
But there are some problems that are incredibly easy to solve, and there are some that are incredibly hard to solve. Why don't we start with solving the easy and effective ones? And this, of course, bears on that whole conversation on climate change, because in some ways, you know, that's that's also Andy's point of saying, look, if you want to save people from from the impacts of hurricanes, let's fix this simple, easy things about vulnerability first. Whereas we have somehow latched onto this, let's fix the hardest thing to do which is to get everyone to stop using fossil fuels, which is basically what's driven the last 200 years of, of development. That's going to be, that's a tall order, no matter how you look at it. There's some really cool elements that, that you guys just brought up. You mentioned that word moral before. I wasn't, I latched on it because it relates to these timescales that really are Im immeasurable. If, if you know it's going to take decades to confirm the benefit of some investment now. That implies you're doing the investment with some moral imperative, not because you can do a spreadsheet and come up with a number. And that that process, letting go of the need for kind of a mechanistic cost-benefit approach, thinking about kids' education in poor countries, or several things we talked about, seems to be really important, and it's very hard for all of us to do. Philanthropists suck at it. I worked at National Geographic Society for a year building some new programs when they got a big infusion of money. They have a whole department that's called M&E. It's measurement and evaluation, which is if you don't prove it, it goes away. I mentioned Spotify earlier, Spotify killing a climate podcast because that podcast didn't measure, measure out for their impact, you know, what they want to do. And um, if we're always making the judgments based on strict cost benefit, we're going to miss larger realities. Another thing is, um, another a really exciting example of what you're talking about in terms of in Ukraine with the trust and lack of corru less corruption and stuff was in India. Uh, for all of his issues, Modi um, recognized that middle-class people in India cook on LPG, propane, or on piped gas, natural gas if they're in cities. Much cleaner, much healthier in so many ways. And actually, compared to like chopping down trees and cook, cooking on wood, it's actually better for the climate, even though it's a fossil fuel. So he he and others, there was an American scientist, Kirk Smith, who worked this all out. Um, if you find a way, you had to, tr they were getting a subsidy. They had, they had that energy subsidy. You were talking about many poor countries subsidize energy just to stay in office, you know, <laughs> to make something cheap that everyone wants. Um, but they wanted to shift the subsidy away from the middle class to the poor, poor people who are cooking on firewood and dying young from pneumonia. And what the, the critical factor was India's digital currency. India went to a digital economy. Very poor families there now. If you have a phone, you basically, that's your bank. And you could make the case to the public that we're, we're going to be starting to shift your LPG, your propane subsidy to poor people. But we know they're poor. We know they're not just going to be using it behind their restaurant, which was, you know, the when it was a general subsidy, people were hoarding the LPG. And, and the system has worked. It, they've shifted a lot of capacity to cook on a clean blue flame that turns off and on in homes that previously, where the woman would spend hours collecting firewood, smoky fire, cooking, clean the pots and start all over again. But it's all built on trust, all built on the digital economy, that, and the same thing in Nairobi. So, so that excites me every day. You know, with all the doomism, 
I just hope people can literally take a breath, look for these examples um, that show the potential when you have a trustworthy system, when you have a clear path to making lives better. And then knowing, you know, that kid having electric light as opposed to a kerosene lamp, we don't know how, how much that's going to improve his homework and lead to a better outcome. But we know from history that sometimes it does. Ban Ki-moon, former Secretary General, told the most powerful story I ever heard from a UN Secretary General was like 2012 when they were rolling out this Sustainable Energy for All initiative, which is not just climate, it was just like getting people energy they need to survive and thrive. He's, he was growing up in post-war Korea. Everyone was poor. Everything was broken, destroyed. Sadly, like so much of you, many parts of Ukraine. And he would do his homework by kerosene lamp. He said when he was studying for his finals, his mom would give him a candle. It was a brighter flame, you know, better grades maybe. And he became secretary general. It's a hell of a story. So which, uh, for climate change, which policies work, which don't? Mm. which are, when we look at this formula of $1 in, $45 out, for climate change, what dollar in, what policies for dollar in and, and dollar out are good and which are not? Yep. So, uh, so we actually did a, uh, a whole project back in 2009 when, when the, the whole world circus was coming to Copenhagen oh, and yes. we were going to save <laughs> the world there. Uh, we brought together uh, about 50 climate economists and three Nobel laureates to look at where can you spend a dollar and do the most good for climate. And what they found was a lot of these things, as we've been talking about before, that that basically investing in, in the current sort of technology that we're trying very hard is at best a pretty dicey outcome. Uh, much of it is probably less than a dollar back in the dollar. Uh, there's some, uh, investments on, on, uh, adaptation, for instance, that's pretty good, but it's, you know, sort of two, $3 back on the dollar. Oh, what uh, is adaptation? The obvious thing is that you build a dike for a sea level rise, uh, or that you make people, uh, you get some apps that people know that there's a hurricane coming or that, you know, so you can the adapt infrastructure, to, right? Yes. The, 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 the physical the, and the digital infrastructure. Yes. The, the point is that people are really good at doing this already. Uh, because they have a strong incentive to do it. So the extra thing that governments can do outside is somewhat good, but it's not amazing or anything. What we found by far the best uh, investment in the long run was on investment in energy innovation. So, uh, and, and I think this also sort of corresponds with what we would think in general. Uh, if we could innovate, so, you know, for instance, Bill Gates is arguing we should have fourth generation nuclear. So the next, uh, the more advanced than what we currently have in third generation nuclear, which would be, uh, uh industrial scale process. You'd just be building these, you know, uh, uh, modular nuclear power plants. They would be, instead of being this artwork that we design once for every d different plant, which is one of the reasons why they're so expensive, they would just be mass produced and you would have one, you know, uh, uh, 
they all be recognized in one go. So it'd be much cheaper. They would also be passively safe. So uh, if if all the power goes, they'll shut down rather than go boom. Uh, so that's, that's another very good yeah. thing. And then they'll also uh, be very hard to transform into nuclear uh, weapons. Uh, so you can actually imagine them being out in a lot of different places where we'd perhaps be a little worried about having you know plutonium lying around. Now, this is all still being worked out. But imagine if that actually comes out. And, and again, remember, the other three generations, they were we were also told that it'll be incredibly safe and it'll be incredibly cheap. And it didn't turn out that way. So let's, let's wait. But it could be. And so the argument is invest in these ideas, for instance, fourth generation nuclear. And if fourth generation nuclear becomes cheaper than fossil fuels, we're done. Everyone will just switch, not just rich, well-meaning Americans or Europeans, but also the Chinese, the Indians, everybody in Africa, the rest of the uh, uh, Indian subcontinent. That's how you fix these issues, right? So the idea here is to say, instead of thinking that we can sort of push people to do stuff they really don't want to do, which is basically saying let's let's use more of the uh, you know the solar and wind that you would otherwise have invested in, force people to buy an electric car by giving huge subsidies because otherwise they're clearly not all that interested in buying it and so on, then get the innovation such that they become cheaper than fossil fuels and everyone will switch. Uh, this is how we've solved problems in the past. If you yeah. think in, in Los Angeles in the 1950s was hugely polluted place, mostly because of cars. The sort of standard climate approach today would be to tell everyone in Los Angeles, I'm sorry, could you just walk instead? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, that just doesn't work. That doesn't pay off. You never get you know, politicians voted in office or at least staying in office if you make that kind of policy. What did solve the problem was the innovation of the catalytic converter. You basically get this little gizmo and it costs a couple hundred dollars and you put it on your tailpipe and then you can drive around and basically almost not pollute. Mm -hmm. And that's how you fix the air pollution in Los Angeles. Basically, we've solved all problems in humanity, all big, difficult problems with innovation. We haven't solved it by telling everyone, I'm sorry, could you be a little less comfortable yeah. and a little more cold and a little poorer uh, and believing that that can go on for you know decades, and and while it possibly works in some pockets of the U.S. and I, I think actually in, in large parts of Europe at least it used to uh, the this uh, the the war in Ukraine is definitely sort of changing that whole perspective. But you know there's a willingness to say we're going to you know suffer a little, but then we'll fix this problem. But the point is we're going to be willing to suffer a little and so fix a tiny bit of mm. the climate problem instead of actually focusing on innovation. So what we found was if you spend a dollar on innovation, you will probably avoid about $11 of climate damage in the long run, which is a great investment. And the terrible thing is we have not been doing this. So because everybody is focused on saying we need this solution within the next 12 years, it means you're not thinking about the innovation. We're actually spending less money, not more money on, uh, on innovation globally. So everyone is focusing on reducing carbon emission versus innovating on yeah. alternate energy. You're basically well, focusing on putting the existing solar panels or wind turbines, which are either you know, just about inefficient or inefficient, instead of making the next generation, or it's more likely the 10th generation after that, that comes with lots of you know, uh, battery backup power, 
or you know uh, uh, fourth generation nuclear or you know Craig Venter has this great idea Craig Venter the guy who cracked the human genome back in 2000 he has this idea of growing algae out on the ocean surface these algae they'd be genetically modified and they would basically soak up sunlight and CO2 and produce oil then we could basically just grow our own Saudi Arabia out on the ocean surface and we'd harvest it we'd keep our entire fossil fuel economy but it'd now be net zero because we just soaked right. up the CO2 out there. In the One dollar invested in the portfolio of different ideas. Yes. Gives and, $11 yeah. back. I, I first wrote about that in the New York Times. It was one of my actual page one stories. Um, in 2006, it was declining R&D in energy at a time of global warming. And it, it, the baseline is so low for this that it's a, it's a super bargain. We were... In during the there was during the energy crisis the seventy the first energy crisis in the seventies, before the current one, um, our annual spending in the United States and constant dollars on R and D research and development for energy was about five billion dollars, and then it, it's just dribbled away since then. And recently now there's a big burst of new money coming through these new bills that got passed. Uh, but what I was told over and over again by people in that arena is you can't just have these little bubbles of investment. You don't get young people away from thinking about Wall Street for jobs toward thinking about energy innovation if there isn't like a future there. And a lot of the, in the United States and Europe, the presumption was the way to that future was taxing carbon. Hmm. You make that so punitive that the you're basically level, eviling, evening the landscape for cleaner stuff that's more expensive. That's a, uh, that has failed completely. There are little examples in Europe where it's working. And what's happened now is, well, in the United States, this big chunk of money is designed to take us over a finish line that was started with not just innovation, but with the production efficiency too. This is one thing I got wrong, I think, a little bit in my reporting. I was so fixated on the innovation part, just because I love science too. I saw this untapped possibility that others were saying, no, no, production efficiency, the more people are producing batteries, the cheaper they'll get. This is Elon Musk's uh, you know, path and many others. And it really is both. So when you were talking about purchasing power for governments, for example, that can stimulate production capacity for batteries or whatever the good thing is and take you down faster. And it's all about getting that margin of the new thing out competing the old. And it's not just innovation. It has so many parts of the pipeline that need to be nurtured. So, so, and and the other thing is relative cost. The United States, when I was writing about this in 2006, uh, our budget for DARPA, the Advanced Research Project Agency for for the Defense Department, for just for science, for was 80 billion a year. For health, for, for medical frontier research on cancer and stuff, 40 billion. Energy was two or three. So we weren't taking this remotely seriously. So now that if we get that up, to me, to me, there's like this level, you know, we're taking something seriously when it's like in the tens of billions for R&D. It's not that R&D will solve the problem, but, our, but it's a proxy for what we really care about. We care a shitload about defense. What's the defense budget in the United States now? Like 800 billion? It's some insane number. Who's counting when you're having fun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, innovation is not just like for the better you know, camera, the better solar panel, the better battery. 
social innovation actually matters hugely. Like the guy in Nairobi I mentioned with a company doing micropayment gas to get people off charcoal. We need that as much as this. And I actually, I interviewed Bill, uh, Bill Gates. Uh, we had spent an hour with him in Seattle in 2016 um, was when he was rolling out his breakthrough energy thing. I got to spend, it was 45 minutes, me and Bill Gates, which was pretty fun. But I, I brought this up. I said, you know, because he's all about the new nuclear thing that will solve the world's problems. And I, yes, yes, yes. But oh, we he also, brought up nuclear? Sorry to interrupt. Oh, he did. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. So he's interested in, in one of the- Oh, he's investing heavily in, in nuclear, but he invests in everything. You know, he's got a big portfolio. Um, but I brought up a guy I met in India um, who runs a little outfit called Selco that they do really interesting, cool village to village. They're like an energy analyst will come to your house here in the States and tell you how to weatherize your house, but they do it at the village scale. And in a village that has, um, where they're milling wheat, he'll put in a solar powered wheat wheat mill. And, you know, that's not gonna solve the world's problems, but it gives them a way to control their energy. They don't have to buy something to grind their wheat. And, and that needs just as much attention as the the things I really like too, the, the cool technologies. And and, and I, I thought I cornered Bill Gates, I was like, because he really does focus on these big wins, the big, you know, like nuclear that will make net zero completely doable. And I said, well, you know, what about nuclear, like New York City, where I was still living at the time, or near, and I said, it's got a million buildings. New York City has 1 million buildings. And in 2013, the Bloomberg government analyzed, they said, looking ahead to 2050, 75% of the buildings in New York City that will exist in 2050 already exist. Think about these brave new futures, right? Like we're just gonna like come in and have these shiny, cool, passive house cities. And I, I, so I put this to Bill and I said, so what's the, how do you do that? How do you, how do you retrofit all those boilers, many of which were coal fired like 20 years ago to get a zero energy New York City? And he, I, I, I kind of thought I had him. <laughs> and then he, he immediately, he kind of sat back and went, well, but if you have unlimited clean power coming into that city, that doesn't really matter. It's a pretty good Bill Gates impression. It was a good, it, yeah. it was a good answer. I mean, it was a good answer. Yeah. He said, oh yeah, it's a leaky bucket, but you know, yeah. pour in zero carbon energy, then it doesn't matter. But I still think we have to figure out the other part too. The that end, how do you how do you innovate at the household level, at the village level? It's much more of a distributed problem. We used to think the one the one big change I've had in my own thinking too is is from top down to distributed. Everything about the climate problem through the first three decades of my reporting was that the, the IPCC will come out a new report, the, the framework convention, the treaty will get us on board, we'll all behave better. This, it has this like top-down, you know, parent-to-child architecture. And everything I've, I've learned has gone the other way. It's distributed capacity for improved lives, you know, kids getting through school women not having to spend three hours collecting firewood. And if it means propane for that household in that context, that's a good thing. So stop with all your yammering about any all fossil fuel subsidies. And, you know, what's an America look like that has some climate, climate safe energy future? Find your part in that. Don't get disempowered by the, the scale of it. There's, there's like a thousand things to do when you start to cut it into pieces. So, so it's a very different. It's not a top-down thing. 
You know, no one's going to magically come in and 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 and, and that's that's where I think. So I I agree that everyone should try to play their their part and 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 do you know whatever they can. Uh, but I also think you know just the the sheer incentives. You know what we saw happening with uh, you know with uh, shale gas is a great example. Yeah. <clears throat> when shale gas becomes so cheap that you just stop using coal, that then you don't really have oh, to totally. convince you know lots and lots of people. You know, it just coal happened. is really bad. And it wasn't labeled it, a climate. No, no it, it wasn't, wasn't a climate thing. It was no, an energy thing. It was totally. Uh, and 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 the and the point is just you know the power of an innovation is that you you almost don't see it anymore. It just happens. Uh, and and I think that's really the only way we're going to fix. You know, these big problems, if you think about, you know, uh, the uh, nutrition problem back in the 60s, 70s, uh, you know, we worried a lot about India and other places. Uh, you know, the solution is not worrying or the solution was not, you know, us eating a little bit less and sending it down to India or wherever. The solution was the green revolution, right? It was the fact that some scientists made ways to make every seed produce three times as much. So you could grow three times as much food on an acre. And you know, that's what basically made it possible for India to go from a basket case to uh, the world's leading uh, rice exporter. Uh, and, and, and that's how you do these things. You, know, you solve these big problems through innovation. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, we're actually arguing a carbon tax is a smart thing to do. You know, that's what any economist would tell you to do. Right. But it also turns out that it's partly, it's not going to solve most of the problem and it's incredibly politically hard to do. So it may also just be the wrong sort of tree to bark up against. You know, if you can do it, please do. Uh, but this is not the main thing that's going to solve climate. The The main thing is that we get these innovations that basically make green energy so cheap, everyone will just want it. We mentioned nuclear quite a few times. Yeah. That, you know, there was a, for a long time, it seems to have shifted recently. Maybe you can clarify and educate me on this, but there, for the longest time, people thought that nuclear is, um, is uh, almost unclean energy or dangerous energy or all that kind of stuff. When did that shift? What was the source of that alarmism? Uh, and what maybe is, is that a case study of how alarmism can turn into um, the, a productive, constructive policy? <laughs> productive from whose standpoint? <laughs> um, I is it not? Is it not like a nuclear? No, I was trying to be, oh. do you mean productive in terms of, yay, we banned it or productive for those? Oh, I went? see. I see what you mean. Yes. Um, I meant productive for human civilization. The, no, the alarmism over nuclear power dominated any alarmism over global warming. Absolutely. Uh, oh, really? Oh, yeah. It, this in the United States, um, Three Mile Island, then you had Chern Chernobyl there. And the traditional environmental movement won't, still won't go there. They still, the big groups, uh, NRDC, EDF, that whole alphabet soup of the big greens, uh, are reluctant to put forward the nuclear option because they know a lot of their aging donors basically grew up in the thinking about nuclear as, as the problem, not the solution. I lived for the last 30 years. I moved to Maine recently, uh, but I lived in the Hudson Valley, uh, 10 miles from the Indian Point nuclear power plant, which was built in the 60s, 70s, and had some problems. None of them were to the point of a meltdown or the threat of it, or even the theoretical possibility of one. I've been in, I was in it twice as a reporter, you know, looking down in the cooling pool. I can send you a fun video of bubbles in the cooling pool with the rods. And progressively, they 
demonstrated how to handle waste in the United States. Now the waste is, uh, because we haven't figured out how to move it across state lines, it's uh, uh, glassified, it's put into kind of containers that sit there at the plant. Uh, we just sim simply don't have a long-term solution. Um, the uh, Nevada uh, politicians were successful in saying not here, not here, not Yucca Mountain. And, um, but my wife, who I've been married to, well, I met 30 years ago, and she lives with me. She's an environmental educator. She was very happy when Cuomo shut it down, said we're going to shut it down three or, three or four years ago, which just happened a year. It actually is shut down now. It's being mothballed. And I was like, that sucks. Hmm. We need... It, but she's happy. Yeah. And we still love each other. And but, she's an environmentalist, so that, that yeah. just speaks to a lot of environmentalists still see nuclear as bad. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and you bring in the the, the weapons proliferation issues, and but it's a safety thing. It's it's a generational thing. I think young people are different. Uh, I hope these small modular reactor designs, several of which there's a couple of PhDs from MIT uh, who did transatomic power. They're they're both like in their early 30s. We need so much more of them. And just briefly, the one thing I say about nuclear is. Like with so many of these things, like subsidies, don't talk to me about yes, no nuclear. Talk to me about what do you want to do with existing nuclear power plants? And what do you want to do about the possibility of new ones? Let's parse this out in chunks that we can have constructive conversations about. The idea of no nuclear drives me crazy, just like no fossil fuel subsidies is silly in the world we inhabit that has these pockets of no energy. So that... That's just my, you know, my sustain what mantras. Start with some dividing it and divide and conquer. To conquer the dispute over by saying, let's at least get real. This power plant has been in the Hudson Valley for 30 years. It was the base load. It was base load. Base load is a real thing. And you, guess what has filled the gap since that power plant has turned off? Natural gas. Natural gas. But, and you don't hear that from the environmental community that was so eager to turn off the Indian point. I, I think both the point of, you know, saying that people are saying it's the end of the world, but no, I don't want a nuclear power plant. It just doesn't right. make sense. Right. Um, and, and Andy's absolutely right to talk about, so existing nuclear power plants, we already paid for them. We already have them. Right. We already committed to decommissioning them eventually while they're running, they're pretty much the cheapest power you can possibly have on the planet because it costs almost nothing to run them day to day. So, you know, it's basically cheap or almost free yeah. CO2 baseload power. There's just nothing there that is that doesn't you know you, sh you should embrace. Now, new nuclear power plants turn out to be very expensive currently. So, you know, the one they built in Finland, sure. uh, some in, 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 in the UK and France and several other places turn out to be incredibly ex expensive. So they're much more expensive than, you know, the, uh, the, the costliest uh, renewables you can imagine. So they're actually not a solution right now. And that's why we need the innovation. That's why we need the potentially sure. fourth generation nuclear power. It's just simply, it's a bad deal. And that's why, you know, uh, nuclear is never going to win on its third generation. Now, it may never get there. You know, who knows? But it's certainly a, 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 a possibility, and we should yeah. be looking into it. And there are, there are, you know, wonky realities that need to be 
dealt with. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the United States, their approval process is still locked and designed on this 50-year-old model of big, giant power plants. Mm. There's an intense discussion right now about evolving a new regulatory scheme for small modular ones because of all these implicit advantages they offer. And that, so it, along with the innovation, you need to have this Regular get out of the way or you're never going to have the investment. Yeah. So, so it, it really is an all of the above thing. And looking at these as systems uh, problems, systems solutions is really important. Uh, let me ask you about Alex Epstein. So he wrote, I'm not sure if you're familiar who he is, yeah. but he wrote a couple of books. It's just interesting to ask a question about fossil fuels because we're talking about reality. And he's somebody that doesn't just talk about the reality of fossil fuels, but he wrote a book, uh, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels and uh, Fossil Future, where he makes the case uh, that, as his subtitle says, global human flourishing requires oil, coal, and natural gas, or more oil, coal, and natural gas, not less. Uh, what do you think about the argument he makes? So he he pushes, we've had this kind of, speaking of the center, of this balanced discussion of the reality of fossil fuels, but also investing a lot into re renewable energy and that ha having the $1 to $11 return. Sure. But he says like, well, I'm not sure exactly how to uh, frame it, but the investing and maintaining investment to fossil fuels also has a positive re return oh, yeah. because of how efficient the energy is. I've read the first book. Yeah, I haven't read, I've got his second one. I've been planning to have him on my, my webcast, my tiny webcast. No, What's he, the he, name of the webcast? Sustain what? Everything I do is sustain what? Because it's like, don't talk to me about sustainability. Sustain what? For whom? How? Then we're talking, you know? Um, interrogatory approach to things. So um, I think the valuable part of what he has done is to remind people, particularly in the West or North or whatever, the developed world, that everything we take for granted low fertilizer from low fertilizer prices to air conditioning to everything else exists because we had this bounty that we dug out of the ground or pumped out of the ground it's a boon it's been an amazing boon to society period so start there mm -hmm. which means going forward what we're talking about is a substitution or having your fossil fuels and eating it too meaning getting rid of the carbon dioxide if you focus on the carbon dioxide which is the thing warming the planet, not the burning of the fuels, then that's another way forward that could sustain fossil fuels. As far as I can tell from at least the first book, he, he makes the moral case that fossil fuels are essentially a good overall. Um, I don't think he adequately accounts for the need to stop global warming. You, you know, I think that we have to slow, slowing global warming is a fundamental need in this coming, in this century we're in. And yeah, that's just not factored into his math. Well, I think that's where and I've had a few sort of offline conversations with him. I think he he said, because I mentioned him talking to the two of you, he said that he that's probably where he disagrees about sort of the the level of threat that um, yeah. global warming causes. Well, Steve Coonan is another one. Uh, he, he He's a brilliant guy. He lived right close to me in the Hudson Valley. He was in the Obama administration energy department. It's K-O-O-N-I-N. He wrote a bestseller that came out recently on skepticism about climate. Um, and um, 
other there are other smart people who somehow feel we can literally adapt our way forward without any constraint on the gases changing the climate. And I, you know, I've spent enough time on this. I, I think I'm a pretty level-headed reporter when it comes to this issue. And I think having some sense that we can adapt our way into the world we're building through relentless climate change with no new normal. Remember, more gas accumulating in the air every year. These are not static moments. That, we, that that's a good thing to do is doesn't strike me as um, smart. I, I'd probably say that, that I, I think it's more sort of a, a, at least the thing that I take away from Alex is um, is the fact, as uh, as you point out, that we need to recognize that fossil fuels is basically the backbone of our society today. We get 80% of our energy from fossil fuels today. Still, as we did 50 years yeah, ago, 40 yeah, years ago. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and people have no sense of this, right? No. So they have the idea, because you see so many wind turbines and solar panels and everybody's talking about it, that this is huge, big things. But the reality is, remember, only about a fifth of all energy use is electricity. The rest is, you know, processes and heating, industrial processes and so on. So uh, actually, you know, solar and wind right now produces 1% from, of, of energy from wind and 0.8% from solar. This is not a huge thing. It's a fairly tiny bit. Now, and growing explosively. It, it, but it's, from it's this yes, it's absolutely growing. But as, actually, it's growing slower than what nuclear was growing in the 70s and 80s, which I thought was a, a fun point, not by a little amount, by like two or three times. So so we're, we're still talking about you know something which is you know, somewhat boutique, at least. And, and when you then look out into the future, and, and I think this is the interesting part of it, when you look out into the future, if you look at the Biden administration's own estimate of what will happen by 2050, we will be at, you know, if all countries do all the stuff that they promised and everything, we will be at 70% fossil fuels by 2050 mm -hmm. globally. This this is just yes it's a it's a better world I, I think it's good that we're now down to seventy instead of uh, of, yeah. of eighty but it is still a world that's fundamentally dependent on fossil fuels for almost everything that we really like about the world and forgetting that and I think we are doing that in the sense of, as you also mentioned that people say no fossil fuels and you know we're uh, in all development organizations we're now telling the poor countries you can't get any funding for anything that has to do with fossil fuels uh we have literally redu reduced our uh, our uh, uh, investment in uh, in um, uh, uh, oil and gas by more than half since 2014 and much of this is because of climate concerns this has real world consequences this is why energy prices have gone up. It's not the only reason, COVID also, certainly the war in Ukraine, but this is an underlying systemic reason why fossil fuel costs will go up dramatically. Now, a lot of greens will sort of tend to say, well, that's great because you know, we want fossil fuels to be expensive. Right. We want people to be forced over to renewables, but that's very easy to say if you're rich. You know, it's the kind of thing that New Yorkers will say, you know, when, when you go to rich, well-meaning uh, green New Yorkers and say, yes, gasoline should cost $20 a gallon. Well, you don't have a car. <laughs> you yeah. just ride the metro. It's very easy for you to say that. But lots of people, both in the rich world, but, you know, in, in, in poor parts of the U.S., but 
all around the world, their lives are basically dependent on fossil fuels. And so the idea that we're going to get people off by making it so expensive that it becomes impossible for them to live good lives is almost morally reprehensible. And I think Alex has the right point there. We need to get people to realize we're not going to get off fossil fuels anytime soon. So we need reasonably affordable fossil fuels for most of the world. And that's, of course, why we need to focus so much more on the innovation so that we can get to the point where we no longer need fossil fuels as soon as possible. But to say to everyone, look, we're going to make fossil fuels expensive way before we have the solution is just terrible. And the rich, the so much is on the rich countries of the world. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I did a conversation recently with Johan Rockström, who's a famed uh, sustainability scientist in Stockholm. Actually, Potsdam now. Um, right. And he's come up with the idea of planetary boundaries. You know, There's lots of things he has said that I, as a journalist, I'm still looking into about that. Planetary boundaries? Yeah, that there are limits to what Earth can absorb in human, our use of water, phosphorus, or carbon dioxide loading, loading in the atmosphere. There are these tipping, there are these boundaries. If we cross them, we're in a hot Trouble. zone, a danger zone. Right. He's an interesting thinker. But on this point, Last year at the Glasgow Climate Talks, he gave a very important talk about the equity thing here, that you, he basically laid out a landscape saying the rich nations of the world need to greatly ramp up their reduction of emissions or what they're going to pay poor countries to do um, to allow poor countries, some of which have fossil resources, like in Africa, to have the carbon space to... <laughs> to own whatever space or time is left to be able to develop their their fossil fuels uh, as a fundamental right. Because also they're starting from this little baseline. Ghana hasn't contributed squat to the global warming problem in terms of emissions. Ghana has natural gas. And right now, this month, uh, environmental groups are outside the World Bank uh, today, actually tonight, saying... This was on their list of dirty projects. World Bank should stop financing Ghana's right to get gas out of the ground, right. to develop its economy, get its people less poor, make them more productive, innovative parts of humanity. It's To me, that's uh, really reprehensible. One of the other projects on their list, as a World Bank kind of gotcha, like how dare they give money, was for a new uh, for a fertilizer factory in Bangladesh that is designed to get three times as much fertilizer from the same amount of natural gas as the old plants that are now dormant. That's, this is in a time when we're facing high energy prices, high gas prices, high, high food prices, when food insecurity is spreading rapidly. When a country like Bangladesh has millions of rice farmers who need urea tablets to put in their rice fields, and to say that shouldn't that that how dare they finance that because there's a fossil fuel involved is is immoral. It, so so yes on that point from Alex. So this is 2022 poll polls. Uh, just this is a bunch of different ways to look at the same basic effect in the United States. Democrats, younger Americans identify dealing with climate change as a top priority. U.S. adults. 42% say uh 42% say that dealing with climate change should be a top priority. 11% of Republicans, 65% of Democrats. And we could see this effect throughout. Uh 
46% of Americans say human activity contributes a great deal to climate change. By the way, this is a little bit different than what we're discussing. I was um, just looking through different polls. In the public, there seems to still be uncertainty about the uh, how much humans contribute to climate change. More than the well, scientific I mean, It would only be 24% that disagree with the UN climate panel, right? Three three quarters but would agree. Are you uncomfortable about the twenty nine? I, I no twenty nine is actually it's exactly right. I mean, okay. Well, the I UN guess, doesn't say it's all. Well, they say that could be yeah. the border case. But anyway, this is interesting. But to me, across all these polls, if you look, Republican versus hmm. Democrat, yeah. Republican, uh, it, it say that seventeen percent say it's a great deal. Democrats say seventy one percent say it's a it's a great deal, and you just see this complete division i think you probably the covid pandemic uh you know you can ask a lot of questions like this do masks work are they an effective method to slow transmission of a pandemic you, you'll probably have a, the same kind of polls about republicans and democrats and um <laughs> what while the effectiveness of masks to me is a scientific question but um so there's different truths here, apparently. One is a scientific truth. Uh, one is a truth held by the scientific community, which seems to be also different than the scientific truth sometimes. Uh, and the other is the public perception that has that's uh, polluted or affected by political affiliation. Sure. And then there's uh, whatever is the uh, narrative that's communicated by the, the media. They will also have a question, the answer to the question of whether masks work or not. And they will also have an answer to the question about all these climate related things. So that's a long way of asking the question of what, how is politics mixed into all of this? Yeah. On the communication front, on the figuring out what the right policy is front, on the friction of humanity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the face of the right policies. Well, I've written a ton on this. Uh, after I had that conversion about the social science yeah. when 2006, I began digging in a lot more on how people hold beliefs and what they do as opposed to what they think and questions about polling. And there's two things that come to me that make me not worry about the basic literacy, like is is climate change X percent of whatever. I don't really care about that. And I'll explain why. Um, for one thing, more science literacy, more basic literacy, like what is a greenhouse gas, all that stuff. Dan Kahane, K-A-H-A-N at Yale. He's actually at Yale Law School. The last decade, he did all this work on what he calls cultural cognition, which is, and he did uh, studies that showed, you know, how what you believe emerges based on culture, based on your background, you know, your red, blue, your where you are in the country. And one of the one of the really disturbing findings was that the people who have the most basic science literacy, like who know the most about greenhouse effect or whatever, they're at both ends of the spectrum of views on climate, dismissives and alarmed. Mm -hmm. Steve Coonan, as I mentioned, is a good example. He's a brilliant physicist. And he knows every all the science, and he's completely at the end of skepticism. Um, Will Happer, who was close to being Trump's science advisor, was even more out there. 
and he's on, they're both on the uh, Jason committee that advises the government on big strategic things. Um, and people at the, at the who are really alarmed about it also have the same belief. So as a journalist, I was thinking, do I just spend my time writing more explanatory stories that explain the science better? No. Do I dig in on this work to understand what brings people together? And then these same surveys, the same science shows you, if you don't make it about climate, among other things, this becomes, you don't have to worry about this anymore. If you Google for, Google for no red, blue divide climate revkin, You'll find a piece I did with some really good graphs. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it shows that in America, this is the Yale group again, the, uh, their climate communication group. There's no red-blue divide on energy innovation, none. We need more climate energy, clean energy innovation. There wasn't even a divide country by state by state on whether CO2 should be regulated as a pollutant. But it's all like, what are the questions you ask? If you ask about innovation, if you ask about uh, more in, oh, more incentives for renewable power. Oklahoma, Iowa, you know, I did a piece when I was at ProPublica showing that the 17 states that were fighting uh, Obama in court over his clean power plan were actually, the majority of them were actually meeting the targets that the clean power plan had because they're expanding wind power already. Not because of the climate, because it makes money sense and energy sense. So you don't think there's a political divide in this? Thing? There is on climate, if you call it climate. If you say it's a climate, do you believe in the climate crisis? You're not asking what kind of energy future do you want in your town? And so if you, if you ask that question, the polarization goes away. I guess what I'm asking, is there polarization on policy? No, well, well there, again... The bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed last November, that was bipartisan. All of Congress said yes. And that's a trillion dollars, several hundred billion of which are for cleaner energy and resilience. Yeah, but that's... And that, yeah, but it's not a climate bill. Hmm. And it wasn't a tax. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's incentives. So the word climate and similar words are just used as part of the signaling, like masks. It's it's absolutely. It's not as Dan Cahane's work. The guy at Yale, um, he really demonstrated powerfully abortion, gun rights, um, climate, and a more parsed level. Nuclear power has enduring camps that for and against. What what why do the camps form? Some of it's cultural cognition. It's how you grew up. It's what, what you fear. There's no common human frame for because like like folks like certain individuals like Al Gore. Ah, like he would make a film. He cares about this thing. He's a Democrat. Therefore, I hate this thing. Th therefore, I don't like this thing. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, when people get attached to an issue, if that's what pops into your head mm. when you hear climate, then and it got politicized. It became emblematic, and and you know the whole vaccine thing. I mean, I'm, I'm not American, so I should stay a little bit out of this. But I think uh, it, it seems to me that a lot of the thing that people believe and talk about is really about what they worry that that will lead to in terms of policy down the line. So a little bit like, do masks work? I'm, I'm sort of Im imagining, I don't know whether this is true, but I think part of it is if I say masks work, they're going to force me to wear it for the next year. 
so it doesn't work because then I don't have to wear it kind of thing that it's really, uh, uh, you're, you're looking much further down the line. And certainly on climate, it seems to me that a lot of the people who say it's not real, it's not because they don't know it's, of course it's real, but it's that they don't want you to then come and regulate it really totally. heavily. Yeah. Uh, so it's because it's, they don't like top down government. Yeah. And, right. and also because they don't want another tax. And, you know, that, yeah. there's lots of, of, of uh, so it's, it's really, it's not a science, it's not a straight science question. It really is a question of what do you want to do? And that's where I think, Andy, you're much, much more right in saying we should, you know, have that discussion. So what do you want to do? Because that will be a much easier conversation to say, do you want to do really smart, cheap stuff? Or do you want to do pretty dumb, expensive <laughs> stuff? When you put it that way, you you can get most people on board. Of and, course, it's not as simple as that, I know. And, but, and it gets yeah. back to what you said earlier, that again, you talked about co collaborative cooperation or whatever. There's a guy at Columbia, Peter Coleman, who runs this thing called the Difficult Conversations Laboratory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And when I first heard about it, I was like, oh man, we need that, yeah. you know? <laughs> And uh, his background is psychology and uh, conflict resolution, mostly at the global scale related to atrocities that countries are trying to get over. And um, and there's there's a science to how to hold a better conversation. As, as you either through experience or whatever, no, um, you could if you hold a debate. Like I wouldn't want to be in a debate with Bjorn. We could find lots of things we disagree on, mm -hmm. but that's that takes it back to the win lose model, yeah. right? Who want, that's not how you make progress. And, and what Peter, uh, what I what I learned, absorbed from him, Peter Coleman, because I was thinking like, we need room for agreement. I need to build a room for agreement. My blog and at the Times and then the stuff I do now, you know, it's like, how can we talk and come to agreement? He says, no, no, you don't want agreement. You want cooperation. That allows you to hold on to your beliefs. But to, we're you know, we, can disbelieve it. We can disagree on all these things, but let's cooperate on that one thing. And that's that's a really valuable distinction that's needed so much in this arena because, as I said earlier, you can parse it right down to the whole menu of things Joe Manchin wanted. You know, um, transmission lines. You're, now we're going to have big fights over transmission lines. We've got billions of dollars to spend expanding America's grid, and every community in America is going to say, "Not here." So, how do you? foster a federal local dialogue that allows that to happen if you want to have any hope of a better grid. Um, so that's like, that. those insights come from behavioral sciences that I think are completely under undervalued um, in this area. Pilke loves to quote, uh, I can't, I think it's Lippert, but- Oh, Walter you know, Lippmann. Lippmann, yes, that uh, democracy is not about, you know, everybody agreeing, but it's about different people dis disagreeing but doing the same doing thing. one thing yeah. together. Yes, I mean agreeing that we're going to do this thing. So you can yep. disagree, but still do a thing. You know, possibly for very different you know, uh, reasons. Yeah. And, and there's fine. there's an amazing video clip that shows this so powerfully. 2015 was the build up to the Paris talks that led to the Paris Agreement. You know this, and a really talented journalist at CNN at the time, John Sutter, who's from Oklahoma originally. He um. He saw another Yale study that was a county by county study of American attitudes on global warming, like right down to the county level. And there's this little glowing <laughs> data point in Woodward County, West uh, Oklahoma. Woodward County, Oklahoma was ground zero for climate skepticism, climate denial, whatever you want to call it. 
And he thought, oh, I'm going to go there. And he went there just as a, just to meet people on the street, to talk to them about energy and weather. And, and he did these little interviews. And there's this one with this guy who's like a middle-aged oil company employee, like a business, like an administrator, Thai, Thai kind of guy. And he, he starts out the interview and the guy is saying like, well, you know, God controls the environment. And if you're watching this, you're going, okay, this is going to be interesting. And the backstory, by the way, is the guy, he, he paid for the local uh, playground to have dinosaurs and people, like uh, toy dinosaurs and people all at the playground, because he believes in creation, you know, 6,000 right. year creation. So, yeah. so, so that's the guy, right? And, and then he gets to energy and the guy says, you know, the same guy who believes God controls the environment says, you know, we have half of our roof covered with solar panels and we want to get off the grid entirely. And when I show this, to, I show this to audiences. I say, just pause and think about that for a second. If you went, why do you think that that's happening? And it's because he's independent. He wants to have his own source of power. He's libertarian. He doesn't want the government telling him what to do. He would never vote for Hillary. I guarantee you. This is 2015. But he wanted to get off the grid entirely to be his own, to be to be himself. And so then I say, okay, so if, if you were going around the country with your climate crisis pla placard, and you go to Woodward County. Do you think that would be a productive way to go to that place and make your case? And the answer is pretty obvious, no. If you go in there and you listen, like listening is such an important property that we all forget, including journalists, um, you're much more apt to find a path to cooperation. You could talk to him about, I guarantee if I went there today, maybe I should go to talk about this new bill, $370 billion, how do we make that work You know, at the local level? How do we answer that guy at the energy department, Jigger Shah? So how do we put this to work to get our buses off electricity, to get electrified or transition our street lamps and stuff? You could have a good chat with him. If you go in there and say, I'm here to debate you to death on global warming, forget about it. Actually, let me ask you a question, given your roots as a journalist. Yeah. Um, so yeah, talking to a guy you disagree with, that's one thing. What about talking to people that might be, society might consider bad, unethical, even evil? What's the role of a journalist in that context? So climate change is a large number of people that believe one thing, yeah. large number of people <clears throat> that believe another thing. Uh, it turns out even with people that society deems as evil, there's a large number of people that support them. What's your role as a journalist to talk to them? Well, when I I have talked to really bad people. I, when I wrote about the murder of Chico Mendes, a Brazilian Amazon rainforest activist in 1989, I interviewed the, the killers. Um, one was in jail. Several of them were just ranchers who, you know, they had their point of view. They were there in the Amazon rainforest to... The, the word in Brazil in Portuguese is limpar, to clean the land. You know, they're, they're the bandarantes, the pioneers of Brazil. They go into these frontiers and tame them like we had in our West, you know. And they would bring that up too. They would say to me, well, you did this out, you know. They didn't say you murdered your, your Native Americans and stuff, but they could easily have said that too. And you deforested all your landscapes. Um, so who are you to come down here to? But if I didn't talk to them, uh, that would be, not a way to do journalism. Uh, but when you talk to them, did you empathize with them or did you push back? 
that's the ultimate question. Like if you want to understand, like uh, if you talk to Hitler in 1941, do you empathize with him or do you push back? Because most journalists would push because they're trying to signal to fellow journalists right. and to people back home that, that this me, the journalist, is on the right side. But if you actually want to understand the person, you should empathize. Uh, if you want to, if you want to be the kind of person that actually understands in the full arc of history, you need to empathize. I find that journalists, a lot of times, perhaps they're protecting their job, their reputation, their sanity, are not willing to empathize. Yeah, well, I think this happened with Joe Manchin. I mean, I'm not doing any kind of equation here related to Hitler <laughs> yes, and Joe Manchin. Yes, yes, or, or Trump. I mean, Trump. Yes. I, I interviewed the guy, Will Happer, I mentioned, who was a physicist at Princeton, who thinks carbon dioxide is the greatest thing in the world and we should have more of it in the atmosphere. I profoundly disagree on that point. Um, but I, I interviewed him for an hour, and and it was so interesting because he was trying to kind of rope-a-dope me into making it about CO2 and climate, because he, he's a super smart physicist. And I kind of said, let's, uh, let's talk about some other things. And we started talking about education and science education. He went on for like 20 minutes about the vital importance of better um, science education for uh, Americans. He drew on people he knew from Europe, uh, Hungary, a um, bunch of Nobel Prize winners came from some, some town in Hungary, <laughs> or at least a couple. And he said that he learned their teachers. At any rate, we, he went into a long exposition on that. He, he, he then defended climate science. He said, we need more climate science. He says, I love this stuff. I love the ocean buoys. There are now thousands of them in the oceans charting clear pictures of ocean circulation and satellites. And he said something really important that many people discount, which is we need sustained investment in monitoring this planet. Uh, we, let our, we neglect our systems that just tell us what's happening in the world. And that's happened over and over again. Um, so if I had left it, if I had gone into the terrain of the, the fight over CO2, some journalist friends might have said, oh, that was good yeah. mashup, you know, matchup. And, but I found these really profound and important things that I wanted the world to know about in the context of whether Trump was gonna have him as a science advisor. And, and so if I hadn't gone there, and a lot of people, if you look back, I got hammered mm -hmm. for doing that, from even from friends. And then later, John Holdren, who had been Obama's science advisor for eight years, he said, I would rather have Will Happer as Trump's science advisor than no science advisor. <laughs> In other words, there's a, there's a landscape of things that are important. He recognized that Happer is really smart about defense and all kinds of things too. So it's like you, you do have to sort of screw up your, ideally screw up your um, courage, but then not necessarily get into the, it's like with the guy in Oklahoma, you know, if you go in looking for the differences, you'll find them. You can amplify them. You can leave with this paralyzed sense of, nothing having happened that was useful. Mm -hmm. Or you can find these nuggets. Or Everyone is a human being. Mm -hmm. I can't play the mind game of what I would have said, asked to Hitler, but... Um, I play that mind game all the time, but that's that's for another conversation. Yeah, yeah. I had many yeah. in my family um, that have suffered under him. Nevertheless, he is a human being. 
Yeah. And I, you know, people sometimes caricature Hitler saying like it, that that's when you mentioned Hitler, the conversation oh, right. devolves. Right, a certain point. But I don't agree. I think sort of these extremes are useful thought experiments to understand. Because well, if you're not willing to take your ideals to that extreme, then then maybe you, your ideals need some rethinking in, from a journalistic perspective, all that kind of stuff. A number of years ago, my wife and I were with our, our veterinarian, who's German-born, Dr. Bach, B-A-C-H. We were talking about the dog and stuff, and then we were talking about Trump, and and he just mentioned in passing, he said, my mother voted for Hitler. Wow. <laughs> that hit me like a brick. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was so... Yeah. These, At yeah. the very least, understanding how pathways that lead to people doing things like he did and ordered is essential. And the only way to understand that is to dig in and ask questions and get uncomfortable. That was, It still makes my hair prickle when I think back to him saying, yeah, yeah my, my, my mom voted for Hitler. That somehow makes it super real. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, there's elections, there's real people living their lives. and Exactly. Struggling yeah. with a broken economy and yeah. All kinds of things. Having their own little personal resentments and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Let me ask you about presidents, American presidents. <laughs> um, what? Who had a positive or negative impact on climate change efforts in your view? Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, or maybe you could say that they don't have much of an impact. So like they, in public discourse, presidents have a kind of um, maybe disproportional like we, we imagine they have a huge amount of impact yeah. how much impact do they actually have on on uh, on climate policy uh, very i don't know if you have comments on this well the there is a background decarbonization rate that's happened mm. for 150 years you know we moved from wood to uh charcoal to uh, coal to oil and gas is cleaner it's more hydrogen less carbon and when you i asked recently i asked some really smart scientists who study these long trajectories of energy. When you look at those curves, is there anything in that curve that says, oh, climate treaty, 1992. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Paris. And it's really hard. Uh, or China, I mean, when China came in with his huge growth in emissions, that, that created a bit of a recarbonization blip. But that was this huge growth in their economy. They pulled a bunch of people out of, out of poverty. Um, so yeah, no, presidents don't really change anything on time scales that we would measure as meaning where you could mm. parse it out. I, I think that's not to say that Obama's and the current focus on on the stimulus that's happening, which includes a lot more money for research, et cetera, and innovation. I, I do think that will have, be beneficial in a very, very long run. But I have to say, you know, when Obama stood up and made credit, you know, took credit for reductions from moving from coal to gas because of fracking. Hmm. That was actually Cheney who set yeah, that I was, in motion. I was thinking, I, was thinking I, I would say Bush, not yeah. because I like him or anything, but he's the guy who inadvertently started fracking, right? And It goes and, further back than that. Yeah. It was a federal investment in fracking yeah. in the 60s and 70s. And then this one guy in Texas, right here in Texas, uh, George Mitchell, who, you know, cobbled together technology and that led to this real dramatic change from gas to coal that mostly played out in the Obama years, but that really was stimulated by Cheney's early energy task force, the 2001, when they were getting into office. And also Bush, Bush did something interesting. 
in the whole wonky climate treaty process, it was under Bush that they started to focus on sectors. Let's do a, they did a, oh, and also on big emitters. Let's, this isn't about 200 countries. It's about basically eight or 10 countries. Let's get them into a room and let's have these little subrooms on like electrification, on mining, on whatever, and by parsing it out. And, and Obama picked up the same model. They had different names for it because presidents always name something different than the last president. One was the major economies forum, and then it was the major emitters, something or other. And that getting away from the treaty dots and dashes toward just sectoral, big sectors that matter, you know, gas, uh, electrification, makes a difference. Mm-hmm. But, but again, you couldn't ever measure. No. It's always the lag time would be and, a and, al- and also, I, I think one very under reported fact the uh, uh so the UNEP the environment program uh, uh they come out with a what they call a gap report every year uh where they estimate how much is the world doing compared to what should it or has it promised to do emissions gap. um yeah. yeah and uh in 2019 so just before covid hit they actually did a survey of the 2010s so the last big sort of report on how well are we doing and their takeaway quote and I'm not going to get this right, but it's pretty much what they said was, if you take the world as if we hadn't cared about climate change since 2005, we can't tell the difference between that world and the world that we're actually living in. So despite the fact that we've had 10 years of, you know, immense focus on climate and everybody talks about it and the Paris Agreement, which is perhaps the biggest global sort of agreement and what we're going to be doing, you can't actually tell. And that, I think, is incredibly important because what it tells you is all that we're doing is not even on the margin. It's sort of smaller than that, and I'm not sure what that is. But, you know, we're basically dealing in, you know, so, for instance, the UK loves to point out that they have dramatically reduced their carbon emissions. And they have. They've really dramatically lowered their emissions, but mostly because they've deindustrialized. They yeah. basically said, look, we're just going to be bankers for all of you guys, <laughs> and then everybody else is going to produce our stuff, right. which, of course, is great for Britain. Or I don't know if it's great for Britain, but we can't all do that. And and so most of what we're trying to do right now is is sort of, you know, this virtue signaling, it makes us feel good. It's sort of, yeah, on the margin or in the very tiny margin. But, you know, what we basically, and that was, that was Andy, your point with China, and the reason why we can't tell the difference, of course, is because China basically became the workshop for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and and so not only did they lift more than half a million people out of poverty, sorry, half, half a, a billion, billion yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. half a billion people out of poverty, but they also, you know, basically took over most production in the world. Uh, and so, of course, you know, much many rich countries could decarbonize and or or at least reduce their carbon emissions and feel very virtuous about it. But fundamentally, we haven't solved how does the world do this, and and that's why I think we're also left with this sense of not only are we being told this is a you know, unmitigated catastrophe, and that's why this is the only thing we should be focusing on, but also somehow, and and we can all fix it. And and I don't think we have any sense of how hard this is actually going to be. And that's, of course, why I would go back and say, look, the only way you're going to fix this is through innovation, because if you have something that's cheaper than fossil fuels, you've fixed it. If you have something that's harder and you know costlier and more inconvenient, no, you're just not going to make it. And getting more time by... Cutting vulnerability. Yes. The pockets of vulnerability on the planet 
are huge and they're identifiable and you know what to do. What are the biggest pockets of vulnerability? Well, the infrastructure like, of cities? No, it's where people are living and what their capacities are. Um, so uh, moving people, how do you how do you decrease the vulnerability in the world? What are the big- Affordable low? housing. One reason so many people um, moved out of San Francisco and uh, adjacent cities into the countryside and then had their houses burned down is because they can't afford to live in the city anymore. So affordable housing in cities can limit exposure to, in that case, wildfire. Durban, South Africa, that terrible, dev devastating flood they had this year, past year, who was who was washed away? Poor people who don't have any place to live, so they settle on in a floodplain uh, along a, a stream bed that's livable, you know, when it's not raining buckets. And those are vulnerabilities that are there because of um, dislocation, housing. Tacloban, this typhoon that hit the Philippines terribly ahead of the Paris talks, or was it the previous one? No, it was in, uh, in 2013, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thousands died. Um, most of the stories that were written were framed around climate change because the Pope made a deal about it. It was just before the climate talks of that year. And <laughs> what happened, partially why there were so many losses, was Tacloban City had quadrupled in population in the last 30 years. And most of the people coming into the city were poor, looking for work and settling in marginal places where a surge, storm surge killed them. So those are things we, we the, whatever the we is in the different places, really can work on. And that gives more flex for sure And thinking about how this long trajectory that seems so immovable and so hard, the decarbonization part, there's, there's no excuse. I wrote a piece, not long, I guess a year ago, I said there's a vulnerability emergency hiding behind this this climate emergency label that uh, that's really what needs work and and also on the tackle bond i mean the, the the hurricane that hit in 2013 there was almost a similar hurricane in the early part of uh, uh, uh 1900s uh that hit pretty much the same pretty much the same strength and it eradicated half the city it killed half the city mm. uh and so what's happened since then is you know people just got much much richer you know, from early 1900 to 2013, we've just moved a lot of people out of poverty. Now it's and a lot well, bigger, and, and yeah, Bangladesh is even a bigger example of that. And uh, in the 1970s, they had horrible cyclones. One of which was the Beatles, uh, George Harrison's concert for Bangladesh, great album that I still have somewhere. What's Hundreds the album? of thousands. It's it's a it was he did a concert, a fundraising concert, the concert for Bangladesh after this terrible cyclone tragedy hit hit Bangladesh, and I think there was there were several hundred thousand who were killed, yeah. uh, and a couple like that around that time. Bangladesh has been hit by comparable storms recently, and it's terrible. Every death is terrible, but it's like 123 deaths, hmm. and it's not just because of wealth. It's because people know what to do. It's because there's cell phones. It's because they have elevated platforms in many towns, in many communities, in the floodplains there that you know to get to. Mm -hmm. So they went from hundreds of thousands of deaths in a cyclone to, to 123. When and we it, were working with Bangladesh, it's no longer the problem of, of people dying; it's the fact that their cattle die. So well, you know, right. they want it. They want it cattle places where you could herd your cat. This this is their capital, and it's not to make fun of it. But you know, it's no. an amazing progress that you've stopped worrying about your you know your parents dying, and you worry about and, your cows dying. And when I was talking about social innovation the other hour, there's a model emerging in Bangladesh for uh, farmers to move from raising chickens, poultry, to ducks, and it's working. And ducks actually fetch a higher price at the market. And guess what? When you get flooded, <laughs> they survive. You can still have your income and your future.
Let me ask you to give advice. Put on your sage, wise hat, and give advice to young people that are looking into this, sure. um, into this world, and see how they can do the most good. We talked about what is the one dollar that can do the most positive improvement and to, to lead to forty dollars, forty-five dollars, and so on. What advice would you give to young people in high school, in college, how to have a positive impact on the world, how to have a career they can be proud of, maybe ask Bjorn first, and how to have a life to be they can be proud of? So I think, and, and this really you know, pretty well reflects the whole conversation we've had, we've got to sort of take the the uh, the catastrophism out of the uh, of the climate conversation, uh, and and you know this really matters because a lot of kids literally think that the world is going to end pretty soon, and that obviously makes any other kind of plan uh, 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 meaningless. So first of all, look, you're not going to die. Uh, you know that that poster that people that a lot of kids have. You're going to die from old age, but I'm going to die from climate. No, yes. you're not. Yeah. You're going to die from old age, and you're going to die much older, very <laughs> likely. Right. Yeah. Uh, so th the reality is, the world is, has improved dramatically, and it's very likely to improve even more. So the baseline is good. This is just you know the facts. Then there's still lots and lots of problems, and what you should do as a young person is stop being you know paralyzed by fear. And then realize what you can do is basically help humanity become even smarter. There's a lot of different places you can do. I mean, the obvious thing when you're talking about climate is, what if you could become the guy that you know, develops fourth generation nuclear? Or, uh, it's very likely something that neither of us know anything about right now, but develop the, you know, the energy source that will basically power the rest of humanity. How cool would that be? That's one of the many things you could do. But again, also remember there are lots and lots of other things that need solutions. So what about you come become the guy that makes the, or the girl that makes the, uh, the uh, social innovation in, in uh, Tanzania or in Kenya, sorry, in Kenya. Or what about if you become the person who finds a way that is a much cheaper, more effective way to tackle tuberculosis? Right now, it needs four to six months of uh, medication. That One of the big problems is once you pop the pills and you're, you're fresh, it's really hard to get people to do it for the other five and a half months, right? <laughs> and, and, and you need that. Otherwise, you actually have a big risk of, of, of getting uh, multidrug-resistant uh, uh, tuberculosis, which is a real scourge on the, on the earth. So, you know, what if you develop that? So the, the truth is, not only can your life be much better when you sort of ditch that, uh, that doomerism, but it also becomes much more possible for you to be a positive part of making sure that you do that progress. Why has the world improved so much? Because our parents and great-grandparents, they made all this work. You know, this was all their innovations and a lot of hard work. And I'm incredibly grateful that they've done it, but now it's kind of time to pay back. So, you know, you got to do this for our, you know, our grandkids. You got to make those innovations, make those uh, uh, policy opportunities that'll make the world even an even better place. Totally. And, and to me, there's never been a better time to be effective as a young person because the internet <laughs> connectedness, you can brainstorm with someone in another country just as easily as you can brainstorm with someone down the block when we were kids. Um, as I said earlier with my, my, my pen pal was letters <laughs> taking weeks to come. And 
Um, so the key properties, ideally, that young people would do well to cultivate are, um, well, certainly adaptability, because change is changing, not just, you know, the rate of change is changing. These layers of change are all piling up on each other. Um, having an ability to understand the information environment is a fundamental need now that wasn't a need when we were growing up. We read a few newspapers. My dad would turn on the nightly news, and Walter Cronkite would say, that's the way it is. He would say, that's the way it is. And that's so not the way the media environment is now. So courses in media literacy should be kind of fundamental parts of curricula from like kindergarten on, or parents can do the same thing. There's a woman at URI, University of Rhode Island, Renee Hobbs, who teaches a course in propaganda literacy. <laughs> and she said, you know, the, 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 the history of the word is not bad. Propaganda could be good. It's pro. It's for the, for the church. <laughs> yeah. It, she did a wonderful chat with me. Uh, she laid this out. And, but understanding when it is propaganda, like the tobacco, you know, mm -hmm. there is hopefully a difference between that and, mm -hmm. and that, right? Cigarette ads and, 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 and journalistically acquired information. So a key to all, everything Bjorn was talking about too, is just understanding how to, how to not be sucked into this information environment and spit out as a paralyzed doomist entity. Because once you have an ability to step back, then you can use Twitter or whatever you're on to find people who might have a skill set you don't have that is something you need to do to, to incorporate, to harness, to do the thing you want to do in the world. Um, finding your way to make the world better. And it can have nothing to do with climate, but if it makes a few more people's lives better, then overall you're leading toward better capacity for all this stuff. So that, and, and then the climate problem, the prismatic giant nature of it is what makes it so daunting, but it's also what gives everybody an opportunity. Like there's something for artists, scientists, poets, everybody needs to get in the game. I just spent some time with Kim Stanley Robinson who wrote that book, Ministry of the Future, which is this sprawling novel about a worst case, a worst case outcome where everyone in India is dying, and and uh, um, you know, so fiction can help experiment. Different kinds of fiction, different kinds of arts can help us sort of experiment with what the future might look like in different ways, and just get get started. And the the other thing, unfortunately, that's needed. I think I first said this in two thousand eight when someone asked me something about climate. I said. Weirdly, you have to sort of have a sense of urgency, but a sense of patience at the same time. Like, just roll those words around in your mind. Like, what does that mean? Urgent and patient. How could that possibly be? But actually, it really is the reality. There is an urgency with this building gas that's cumulative, that doesn't go away like smoke when, when, the, when it rains. And every year that happens, it's adding to risk. Um, and you can kind of wake up completely freaked out urgent, but when you realize energy transitions take time, then you have to sort of find patience or whatever your word is for that. Uh, yeah, I think you have to oscillate back and forth throughout the day. Having a sense of urgency when you're trying to actually be productive and a, and a patience so you can have a calm head about you in terms of putting everything into perspective. Uh, yeah. And like you said, with information, that is interesting, especially in the scientific community. I think you've spoken about this before you know, that, that there is some responsibility or at least an opportunity for scientists to not just do science, but to understand the dynamics of 
the different mediums in which information is exchanged. So it could be Twitter for a few years, then it could be TikTok, then it could be, you know, I, I'm a huge believer in the power of YouTube. Over the next several years, perhaps decades, I mean, it's a very interesting medium for education and communication and for debate and that's grassroots, that's from like the bottom up, you know, that that every scientist is able to communicate their work. And I, I personally believe have the responsibility to communicate their work. If anything, the internet made me realize that science is not just about doing the science, it's about communicating it. Mm. Like that, this is not some kind of uh, virtue signaling on my part. No, no, no. No, like I feel like the, if the tree falls in the forest and nobody's <laughs> around to hear it, it really didn't fall. <laughs> like that's not, you. Sh there should be a culture of, um, we have a, at MIT, it's a place called the Media Lab. Yes, sir. Where they really emphasize, uh, like you always be able to demo something to show off your work. They really emphasize showing off their work. And I think that was, in some part criticized in the bigger MIT culture that, you know, that's that's like being, focusing too much on the PR versus doing the science. But I, I really disagree with that. Of course, there's a balance to strike. You don't want to be all smoke and mirrors, but there really is a lot of value to communication and not just sort of some broad, you almost don't want to teach a course on communication yeah. because by the time you teach the course, it's already too late. It's always being on top of, how, um, what is the language, what is the culture and the etiquette, what is the technology of, of communication that is effective? Yeah. I, I actually had a big conversation about that in my, my university because I think, and this is perhaps especially true for, for social sciences, but I think it's probably true for everyone. Uh, just simply communicating what, what it is you've done in research makes it possible for you to sort of get an outsider's perspective and see, yeah. did I just go into an incredibly deep uh, you know, hole Absolutely. that you know, just three other people really care about in the world? Or is this actually something that matters to the world? And, and being able to explain what it is that you've done to everyone else uh, makes, you know, my sort of sense is if you can't say it in a couple of minutes, it's probably, it's not tr necessarily true, but it's probably because it wasn't all that important. There was a hashtag generated maybe seven years ago by a Caltech PhD candidate woman, and it was fantastic. It, the hashtag was, I am a scientist because, and she posted it with a picture of herself with her answer, mm -hmm. you know. And that, I, when I talk to scientists or basically anybody about communicating, I say, start, don't start with, I am a, I am a phytologist and I use a spectrophotometer to do X. Start with, I'm a scientist because the world is endlessly interesting and I just found these salamanders, which are going to vanish if we don't stop this fungus from coming to the United States. Utterly interesting, and then you're then you've got people hooked, but it's the motivation part because everyone grew up as a kid, and a kid is basically like a scientist. Wow, what the hell is this? How does this work? So you can connect with people that way. The but the this other issue you broached is really important, and what I love about MIT particularly, I spent a lot of time there over the decades, not just talking to the hurricane guy, um, Amy Smith, who's the development lab in the basement there somewhere. Most of MIT looks like it's the basement, but yes. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like it's part of the charm. Here. <laughs> but it's a usability function is part of a lot of that goes on there. It's engineering and science. And it reminds me, in 1997, 
these two very different scientists, Dan Kamen at Berkeley and Michael Dove at Yale, wrote a manifesto. It was um, The Virtues of Mundane Science. That's what they called it. It was a prod to the scientific community to actually, it's, it's about useful utility. Because mm. the whole arena is set up to advance your career through revealing new knowledge that will get you tenure someday. And actually doing useful science is disincentivized. Having a conversation, especially if it involves more than one discipline. Because as a young scientist, I, there were some, some postdocs at Columbia who wrote this other manifesto paper saying, here are the things universities need to do to foster the collaborative capacity we need to have sustainable development. And it was like four or five things that universities don't do. Give you time to, un to become fluent and for a, for a physicist to talk to an anthropologist and understand how anthropology works or sociology takes time. And then building a relationship with a community that has a problem that you want to fix takes time. And you, so you do these like quick turnaround papers that get you toward your little micro career goal, but they're not actually getting you what you want in the world. Those are really hard problems going forward. But starting with that idea of usability, what can I do with my skill sets? You know, a lot of great physicists I know are dug in on string theory and stuff. And they sh some, someone has to dig in on that too. But I'd like to, to have them pull a little bit of their brain power away <laughs> to think about some of the practical things Bjorn thinks about too. So the, the two of you have been thinking about some of the biggest questions, which is life here on earth, the history of life here, the future of life here on earth, of earth itself, and uh, how to allocate our resources to alleviate suffering in the world. So let me ask the big question. What do you think is the, the why of it all? What's the meaning of it? What's the meaning of our life here on earth? <laughs> you you waited till the last moment to ask us that question. <laughs> yes, uh. in case in case there's uh, yeah, in, in case in case I can trick you into finding an answer. Well, so I mean, again, I'm I'm just going to take a stab in this because uh, I think in some ways it's um, it's the same thing that you were talking about before. It's not about getting everybody sort of on the same track and all agree on something but it's about getting a lot of people with very different you know, uh, uh, goals and targets and ways of thinking about the world to go in the same direction. So for me, the goal of life, certainly my goal, but I think for, for most people, is to make the world a better place. It, it, it sounds incredibly pedestrian because it's become so overused, but that really and literally is the point. You, you know, your p point of your life is to, you know, when, when one of your friends is, is uh, sad, to make sure that they sort of get out of that and, and find out why they're sad and maybe move them a little bit in the right direction. And, you know, and, and all the things that we've talked about, you know, stop people from dying from tuberculosis and live longer lives and fix climate change, but fix it in such a way that we actually use resources smartest because there are lots of problems. So let's make sure we, you know, we, we, we deal with them adequately. This is, this is very unsexy in some sense. Uh, but I think it's also very basic and really what yeah. matters. Well, you know, biologically well, evolution has demanded yeah. that life is about finding sources of energy and perpetuating yourself. Right. So that's the baseline. And that's led us into a bit of a bollocks because 
<laughs> we have this easy energy, you know, it's come from the ground so far. And, um, but our brilliance has given this, this larger awareness of everything about the planet is transitory. And I said, well, how do you work with that productively is, is really an important question. I could just sort of, you know, try to be as rich as possible and use as much energy as possible <laughs> and have other people. I mean, Alex Epstein, I think, again, this is one of the constraints on my support for what he says is he's just talking about growth and progress in that sense. But there are consequences and there are long-term trajectories here that have to be taken into account too. Um, so what do you wake up to do? To me, it's finding your part of this. And as Bjorn said, finding a way to pursue and expand betterment. When I taught, I was at Pace University for six years. And one of the courses I launched there was called Blogging a Better Planet. <laughs> and it was for grad students mostly in communication. It wasn't an environment, it wasn't like Better Planet, like Save the Climate. It was, But my task for the students was to blog about something they're passionate about, first of all, because you can't do this, just like you can't do your conversations if you don't wake up in the morning wanting to do what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. You're doing this. I used to call myself a selfish blogger because I was learning every day. I still am. I love this. You know, I would, I would, not, my wife laughs. She thinks I work too much, but I'm always like asking those questions, yeah. like sustain what? Yeah. So, so my charge to the students was harness a passion, build a blog, either alone or with others that notches the world a little bit towards some better, better outcome. And so there was a, a musician who did a thing on music, musicians who use their art for their work for making the world better. Some of it was like music therapy, you know bands contributing money, whatever. Another one did, a, her blog was on comfort comfort food all around the world. And I thought it was my favorite. It was a video. So I think it should be viral, actually. It was like looking at the world, every different cultures. She was in Queens. So every culture, every cuisine is there in Queens, 200 countries, right? <laughs> yeah. But she would go and talk to people's moms and have them cook the food of that country that's their comfort food. I mean, I just love this because it's through, we all need to eat. And yeah you're getting this expanded sense of what comfort is by thinking about what other cultures you know, choose. And that felt like a great course because it was not directive. It was just, it gave them this potential to go forward. I, you know, I'd love to think they've all gone on to become superstar, whatever is, I don't know. That's the giving, that's the letting go part. Even if one did something special, then that makes me feel job done. And, you know, when I, after I'd been writing about climate for 30 years, 2016-ish, I did a lot of writing about what did I learn, unlearn, and stuff. And I had had a stroke in 2011, which was interesting. It was the first time I really thought about my brain. You, know, you don't think about your brain on a day-to-day -day basis. But this is my brain telling me, you know, ding, 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 some weird shit's happening. And when I was yeah. thinking about climate, confronting climate change, it felt like some of the things I learned about my own existence, you know, I'm going to die. But you don't really absorb that. Is, a, is that the first time you kind of That was like my first, your like, yeah, this is really the shit, you know, or, yeah. or at least deep disability, if not death. And um, that, that, that ability is transitory. And I thought, thought about the climate problem. We're not going to solve the global warming problem, at least not in our lifetimes. But you, you work on making those trajectories sustainable, you know, the end of life, particularly, you, you work on making sure other people don't get strokes if they can avoid it. In my case, 
I wrote about it. I was blogging about my stroke while I was having it. I was tweeting about it. There's a funny tweet that's kind of mistyped because, um, you know, wow. things Co-pee-pee? weren't working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. So, so, and if you, so that's like share your knowledge, share your learning. Yeah. Um, and everyone can do this now, like on whatever platform. And then um, there's also this like giving up part, but not in a depressing, well, maybe you could call it depressing. I started to zoom in years ago on the idea of the serenity prayer, the sobriety thing. You know, it's like, know what you can change, know what you can't. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, see, those three properties are really important right now. Some aspects of this, we know absolutely what we can work on. Cutting vulnerability. Energy transitions take time. Science can help us discriminate the difference. And that's an iterative changing landscape going forward. But at the same time, science, like I personally on climate modeling or like narrowing how hot it's going to get or more clarity on when an ice sheet is going to collapse. I think those are what I call known unknowables. So being able to, I've seen enough evidence that those are deeply complex problems that we're not going to get there quickly. So then that gives you a landscape to, to act on. And that, you know, whether you bring God into the mix is irrelevant. It's really know what you can change, know what you can't. And know what and that gives you the quality to work on them. And serenity is comfort with that this is transitory, that the human journey, like anyone's individual journey, will have some end. That doesn't mean it has to be near. It doesn't this Anthropocene that I've been writing about for decades is uh can still be a good Anthropocene, or at least a less bad one in terms of how we get through it. And uh, you're also a musician, so in context, one one of my favorite songs of yours, an album, <laughs> A Very Fine Line. I should mention that with the stroke coming close to death, the lyrics here are quite brilliant, I have to say. Oh, yeah. It's a very fine line between winning and losing, a very fine line between living and dying, a very fine line. By the way, people should listen to this. I, I can't play this because YouTube will give me trouble. Oh. A very fine line between loving and leaving. Most of your life you spend walking a very fine line and the rest of the lyrics are just quite brilliant. It is a fine line. Yeah. I'm glad you walked it with me today, gentlemen. You're brilliant, kind, beautiful human beings. Thank you so much for having this quote-unquote debate that was much more about just exploring ideas together. Bjorn, thank you so much. And uh, Andy, thank you so much for talking today. You know, these kinds of extended conversations are the more of it, the better. And finding ways to spread that capacity just to get people out of this win-lose thing is really important. So thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Bjorn Lomberg and Andrew Refkin. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Henry David Thoreau. Heaven is under our feet, as well as over our heads. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.